it's such a beautiful opportunity for those who have the um, that vision in mind to be able to lead their organization or even themselves into the space of unknowing and and liberation and freedom and um, and reconfiguration of the self, all your habits, all of your uh, automatic responses, your mental models that are just assumed. Um, opening that up, opening what Teal does is it really Teal organizing does is it it creates a destination that brings us into the desert that we wouldn't otherwise enter. And I think that's one of the reasons why the why it has so much power and potential as a movement to shift society and how we how we even conceive of being human in the 21st century that's chris clark and this is the emerging future Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. I am your host, Joel DeYoung. This is the podcast where I have the privilege of talking to the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. And today we get to talk to a very special person, Chris Clark. But before we jump into this conversation, um, just a few notes. Um, If you want to check out the actual show notes, I've got links um, related to this conversation with Chris, and that site is lyman.space slash emerging future. So that's L-I-M-E-N dot space slash emerging future. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to the Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash emerging future. And... If you want to come hang out with me and give back to the community and pull some weeds and plant some trees, you can do that pretty much every other weekend in Chiste Green Space in Seattle. So if you're in Seattle, come on out. You can find information on the event page at chiste.org. That's C-H-E-A-S-T-Y dot org. It's family friendly. You can bring six-week-year-old. You can bring your grandma, your 95-year-old grandma. So come on out. So Chris Clark, so this was an awesome conversation. You're going to really enjoy this. He's a great he's a great person, and he's got a vision for a new world. So this is a person you need to listen to. So he's basically on a mission to become fully human in himself and What he describes as helping others recover their native tongue. So he's been on this quest since he's about eight years old. And he has this really unique and innate connection to nature. Um, That's helped him kind of discover the depths of his own soul. And uh, find common ground for himself in relationship to the natural world and to humanity. So... It was an unlikely journey, and it led Chris down the path of uh, first and foremost Christian fundamentalism, and this is something that I didn't even know until um, we got together, so it was really interesting to talk about that and uh, his experience and his stories. And then along the way, um, Chris recognized 
and studied these cultural patterns, these similar cultural patterns between his experience within the church, the nonprofit world, and then corporations and ultimately culture at large. And he found a way to, um, within that curiosity, to develop an understanding of the way that systems work, and it moved him into the work of organizational structure. And he gets into our next evolution of what organizing looks like in the world. And there's this thing called teal organizing or evolutionary teal organizing, and I have a bunch of notes on that on the webpage. But it's really uh, very interesting stuff, stuff that I'm personally interested in learning more about and uh, working with businesses um, who are interested in this as well. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do, and I hope you feel like you get to know Chris a little bit, and if you want to connect with me and reach out to me and ask questions, I'm happy to do that, and Chris was also willing to have people contact him. So um, what an invitation, what a person. Enjoy, Chris Clark. We are in North Bend, Washington, in a what Chris would call the caravan. Yeah, the tiny the tiny caravan. Some people live in tiny homes. I live in a tiny caravan of eighteen feet. We we don't know how many square feet this is. We were trying to guess. We're bad. I said eight hundred. He said one twenty. Yeah, we're so. bad estimators. <laughs> <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> Yes, but it has everything you could want. It's got a little bathroom, which uh, you've experienced, and a tiny kitchen. And you can literally stretch out and have one part of your body in every room (laughs) of the house. It works. It's good. Very conducive for conversation, intimate conversation. (laughs) Yeah, and thank you for coming out here and doing it here because I get to light my candle and have my... Artemisia bulgaris and my little rock. I don't know if I showed you this. This is from Stonehenge. Is Actually, it really? Yeah, this is some, that's a piece of chalk. It's this white stone that's maybe three or four inches long. And I grabbed that out of the ground that was near one of the barrows that they uh, that they have in Stonehenge. That predates Stonehenge, actually, where they buried people. And I don't know if I learned this about Stonehenge when I went, but they Stonehenge was a place of healing that, people from all around the world would come to actually so they they can uh, when they exhume the remains they see that this was a place that was sort of world renowned even five six seven eight thousand years ago wow so i pulled that out of the out of the ground it's just this these pieces of chalk are lying everywhere and you can pick them up and walk away with them and i thought that was pretty cool are you sure it's chalk is it kind of looks like a bone <laughs> <laughs> yeah it does have kind of a bony <laughs> this could be an could be ancient artifact like an this ancient, could be a dinosaur this could be like a sumerian thigh bone i don't know what <laughs> but no i'm pretty sure it's chalk chalk rock and a lot of um you know you wander around the uk and there's lots of places where this particular kind of i i you know i i haven't researched exactly what its composition is. I was mm-hmm. just thinking about that the other day, but it is closer to chalk and you can take this and you can write with it. Okay. It's a little harder than like say what you buy off the shelf. Um, but yeah, I thought I would maybe do some art with some Stonehenge 
Yeah, chunk. I mean, it looks like a rock or a fossil. Yeah, yeah, but I, I have that with me. I um, I went when I was on my last trip to Europe. I visited Stonehenge for the first time, and I was pretty overwhelmed with the experience. It was this, especially as I learned more about the history, this sense of standing in this place that has been a traditionally a place of healing for mm-hmm. thousands of years. Uh, it was quite an experience, and I thought, oh, I, you know, I. I would love to bring a piece of that back, which I know I just probably people who are, if, if this gets included in the podcast are probably saying, Oh, how, how could you take something from that spot? But it's literally like Chris took a know. chunk <laughs> off of Stonehenge, not from Stonehenge <laughs> and, himself and brought it back to but Washington just from the grounds. Nobody, <laughs> nobody minded. So <laughs> I said, okay, that's yeah. great. When were you there? I was just there, uh, in the, at the end of summer. So tail end of summer, early fall and I'll be heading back to the UK and Austria and Greece uh, in about a month and a half. So I'm excited about that. I get to, um, this has been a big shift in my life over the last year is that I've been, I've, this will be my third trip in the last nine months. And one of the reasons I'm living here in this caravan is because it's, um, conducive to that sort of being able to hop around the world and not worry about having to maintain something back here in the States. That's pretty, it's a, for me, it's the, the uh, culmination of a dream really to be, to be exploring the world more. And um, especially, you know, it's interesting because I'm sure we'll talk about this, but culture is such a huge part. Understanding culture is a huge part of what I do and, and trying to really understand what's sort of, what's essential to being human. And especially in the globalism era that we're in, I think trying to build common ground is incredibly important. And I'm discovering that that's, that's available. I think that's, that's the next step for us, I think, is that building common ground. And, um, so yeah, so that's, that's where I'm, that's where I'm, I'm headed. So what has, what was bringing you to Europe multiple times? Um, well, this teal work, okay, quote unquote teal work. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it has much more of a presence um, in Europe. It seems that there's a lot more readiness for. I'm sensing that too. Big shift, yeah, <laughs> there. So that's where I get to. I, it's kind of my playground at the moment. That's great. You have the opportunity to go. Yeah, well, I've consciously designed my life in that direction, and uh, it's something that for me feels like sort of a natural I you know I'm, I'm telling people um oh yeah this is what I'm doing this is where I'm going and they ask me that question how did you well how did that happen and it's really the long sort of there's a long tail behind it but it's uh to me it feels really natural and and exciting as this next chapter I've been looking forward to for years finally get to experience it it's pretty wonderful that's great well let's talk about the tail okay yeah where should we start did you grow up in North Bend? I did, actually. I did. Yeah. So this is this is an area where you spent your childhood. Yeah, it's an enchanted place. It's an enchanted place. We moved here when I was eight, from a more of a suburb, Bothell mm-hmm. environment, and now here we are. You know, outside the caravan, I'm pointing uh, eastward, and there's Mount Sai, which is this sort of uh, iconic North Bend figure. It sort of looms over the town and 
it's is itself the gateway to the wilderness. So if you drive another mile up the road, you're officially in the Snoqualmie National Forest. Mount Si is the Native American lying on his back, right? I th- uh, there's a lot of different legends and and because well correct me if i'm wrong because this is what we tell our kids when oh, okay. we drive by <laughs> we say, look can you see him well i i don't know if i i can't correct you one way or the other i have no idea you may be correcting me i well, we see him so you see the man <laughs> yeah. or as my He's... kids say um that's my truth ah right good <laughs> wow your your kids are uh post-truth already huh yeah that's good but they've they've learned to manipulate that too yeah Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. He did this. No, he did that. Well, that's not my truth. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this uh, kind of postmodern life is bringing new challenges to parents, right? Because what do you do with that? That's great. Mm. Dad's Trump uh, trumps. Dad's truth trumps. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, now we can't really... Can't using that word. Yeah. Like, so totally different. I just shivered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a shadow passed <laughs> behind you. I don't yeah. know if you saw that. Well, just wait seven minutes. The angel will pass through the room. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, North Bend is where I grew up. And the, well, Mount Sai, particularly for me, actually, that we were talking about it, sort of was a, um, almost had a spiritual significance in my life. I remember when we moved here, there was a moment where I just in the middle of playing, I just kind of stopped. It was like almost the mountain reached out and spoke to me and, and grabbed me. And I had what I would, as I'm thinking about it now, this encounter with something else, something other, that it was the first real tangible memory I have of something in the world, something in nature, something that was otherwise inanimate, having speaking to me, having a connection. And I remember sitting there and in the middle of this grassy field, looking at the mountain and feeling that I had uh, arrived in some sort of, there was something right about that. Something was streaming between me and the mountain that has not left me. It's, it comes with me every time. So when I, when I came back here a year ago to live in the tiny caravan as the next step of my life journey, I, um, it was in some ways recovering that relationship uh, more and more having having it available to me every day and so I credit that with a lot of the experience of wholeness and health and happiness that I currently experience um, and has been extended to the rest of this region right so like you know my a lot of my life and I, I, you know, I assume we'll get to this but a lot of my life today is I think a direct response to that experience I had as an eight-year-old that has stuck with me and has sort of worked its way, maybe like a seed up through the ground of my history um, in a pretty powerful way. So it was a feeling that I had more than a, more than a speaking in terms of a vocal. It was just this Mm. connection. Uh, I've come to associate the feeling and with speaking with a form of speaking and in in fact i think a lot of what we lack as a culture uh and in the modern age is that uh we we make distinctions between the um the five senses that we're all familiar with and the heart 
And so for, for me, what's, I think a lot of my life energy goes to, or is drawn by, I should say this idea that, that imagination is to the heart, what light is to the eyes, that there's this ability we have through our imagination to sense into what's real that's not available to our five senses. So that's, I think that what was happening in that moment and what happens to me and with me in my life is that there's some part of the world that has, maybe it doesn't have agency that's available to us in the ways we normally think, but there is a spirit to it. There's an aliveness that, that we have access to via the heart. And I think that was my first real conscious experience of that. It's like I was feeling something, something, and I, and I can't define it necessarily say what it was I was feeling only that it felt like connection. And I think that was a real event. And you said it's never left you. Have you gone through times where you've forgotten about it and then had another similar experience that reminded you that sort of brought you back? Oh yeah. Well, this is so important to not only my story, but what I, what I'm about in the world because I did have, um, I, I had as a child a really profound connection to nature, which when we moved here to North Bend seemed like I was coming into it. It, it. it didn't develop from me being here in the middle of the trees and the rivers and the lakes and the mountains, but it, w- it was like it corresponded to that. And when we moved here, I, I really felt that very strongly as the sense of homecoming. And uh, that's how I spent my childhood, like walking along the rocks of the river and jumping into lakes and just tramping all over the wilderness and becoming really familiar with that territory and its aliveness and its sense of presence. And, you know, if you spend a lot of time in the wilderness, if you just go and you sit for a few days and you're not distracted, if you choose not to be distracted, you will discover, I think, the same thing happens in the wilderness as what happens when you meet a brand new person. Right, you meet somebody and you begin to understand their ways and their habits and how they speak and how their mind works and how they communicate, and that's the same thing that that happens if you spend time in wilderness. That ex- same experience is possible. So I think that's that that what I was learning is that I was learning to be able to be with and speak and listen with wilderness with with other than human in a really profound way. But that got squashed in my life. Hmm. And it got squashed in some ways um, that were to my benefit, I think, and some ways that were not. And in some ways, there was great intention behind that, that really noble intention behind the people in my life who, who um, intervened in ways that cut, my, cut me off from that part of myself or my exploration. They had great intention, and in some ways, their intention created some suffering. So... Um, I think of it now as I look back uh, with gratitude because I realize that my experience has prepared me to be able to be in the world and help others to be in the world in a way to recover much of what we've lost. Um, That native tongue of being in wilderness and the native experience of the heart that is available to us all. So for me, what it was, was um, I actually entered... uh, I entered a phase in my life where I began to be really afraid of hell. That's what it started with because I had some people in my life, some family members who were um, sort of witnessing my, my approach to nature, which was probably sort of, you know, in my, in my young concept, I kind of equated 
nature with God. And they saw that and said, oh, that's pagan. That's pagan or animist or, you know, they put a label on that and then said, and you're going to hell for that. And these are people in my life that I trusted. They were people that that had proved over and over again in my life as a young child that they loved me and they had my best interest at heart. So I really, I just completely believed that concept. And um, it started me on a journey that eventually led to me becoming a pastor and getting a, having a role here actually in the Valley, not my intention, but um, I ended up back here in the Valley uh, working as a pastor and for a, a community church here. Um, did you decide in, in college that you wanted to go that route? When did you, when did you decide I'm going to be a pastor? Well, I, you know, my, hmm, well, I, I think it's, it's pretty important what happened to me. I, and, and probably says a lot about me in the shape of who I am in the world that I, I had experiences that were really negative in the Christian faith, um, where I saw that the rule set um, precluded people from living with joy. And, and I thought, gosh, this, this can't be the way. So what is the way? And the first way that I tried, um, to make sense of how to live in the world as a Christian was, uh, to go the way of what we would probably call fundamentalism. And I tried that experiment for about a year and I saw that it produced more suffering than it did life or joy. Um, peace, you know, any of the quote unquote fruits of the spirit that you read about in Galatians. And I, I thought, gosh, that's not it. And I had the intervention of several friends who said, Hey, we love you. And this is the harm you're causing with what felt to me like I was living out the natural conclusions of the orthodoxy. You know, if, if the orthodoxy says to go to 10, I took it to 11. And cause if, you know, there's not such a there's no such thing as too much holiness, right? Or too much goodness or too much. Uh, yeah. So, so I went in that direction and, and it didn't work so well. And, um, like I said, caused misery and suffering in many different areas and communities in my life. And, um, so then I, I relaxed a bit and went the other direction and eventually ended up in this church where, um, it, it really matched where I was at the time. I really needed to have a more organic experience. That was the big, the big word was organic, that church should be organic. And it's interesting because I think it, it harkens to this idea that there's something about the unfolding of the natural world, the organismic natural sense that, that should be and could be honored in a way that produces more health and wholeness than uh, our attempts to rigidly control. So I think that's a really positive, a positive directionality that the church has been taking for a long time. And this particular church that you were involved in, what's its name? That was Snoqualmie Valley Alliance. And did they describe themselves as organic or is that an idea that you had in your head? I need to join a community that is operating more organically. Uh, well, actually it's a word that was first used in a, in a phone message I received from the pastor, which came out of the blue. I was, I had been working in churches and had been suffering through what felt to me like, uh, the church's tendency to pay attention to things which were not essential, you know, they create rules and, um, make definitions that, that make life neat, orderly, and tidy, but produce suffering as a result. 
And I was really fed up with that. So at one point I said, I made a pact with God and I said, I'm going to give you two weeks. I'm quitting this, this ministry that I'm involved with and I'm going to give you two weeks and you can, uh, you can, if you want me to continue on in ministry or continue in your service in that way, then you're going to have to like smack me over the head or do something. Cause I'm not going to do it. And I had a buddy of mine who was saying, Hey, come join this technology company. I had been a computer science major in college for a couple of years. I'd worked at Microsoft for, um, some through the summers. So I had, that was an option for me was to go in that direction, go and do technology. So I said, okay, so that's what I'm going to do. God, I'm going to get paid a lot better. And I at least won't have to suffer through this crap. Um, that seems to attend your churches wherever I go. Hmm. So you're going to have to hit me over the head and two weeks passed, nothing happened. And then that morning I was going to call my buddy up, Sam and ask him for a job. And I saw that I had a, a, um, a message on my phone. So I listened to it, and it was this pastor, Pastor Monty from Snoqualmie Valley Alliance. And he said, hey, Chris, uh, I got your name from Brandon and John, and uh, and they were just kind of describing where you're at and what's going on with you, and I think we should have coffee. And uh, it sounds like you're after a more organic church experience. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay, okay, my interest was piqued. So I called him back and we had coffee and I had no idea that I was in the middle of a job interview. I was just laying out my heart and saying, this is uh, voicing a lot of frustration and pain and explaining my story. And he said, uh, after that coffee, he said, um, okay, so you're going to come be our new pastor. You're going to be our next pastor. Um, what did you do? Well, it blew me away. And I was, <laughs> and you know, the the conversation was so, there was such a like-heartedness and like-mindedness in that conversation that it, it seemed to me, it was one of those experiences in my life I've had a few times where it, it was like a, a no-brainer, right? Not in the terms that it was obvious, but that there was some part of me that was answering, not my head, that was saying yes. And once it said yes, there was no saying no. It was just that was what was, right? So I went and, and joined the church and I was there for five years. Five great years in which I um, I got married and uh, had developed the ministry that I was a part of. I, I led the uh, the worship ministry and the teen slash youth ministry and college and career. And even though I myself was barely out of college, I was 24 at the time that I became a full-time pastor. Wow. Yeah. And I look back at that and I say, wow, what an, uh, what an amazing trust in what was innately within me, my, my sensitivity and my sensibilities. And also what an amazing opportunity for a 24 year old who's not yet acquired enough wisdom to do that. Well, you hmm. know, I really, I made so many mistakes and I look back on that and I think, gosh, they really supported me in my youth, in my youngness, <laughs> you know, really patient, wonderful people. And their ministry was the, the ministry of the church was, um, incredibly dynamic. There was, uh, uh, there was and is a really healthy recovery ministry there. So what I experienced in that church was that I experienced the power of people who were freed from the limitations of the orthodoxy that, that really were having an authentic encounter with spirit in my, I still think that today, even though I've really changed in how I think about the world, I think, yes, yeah, spirit was, was and is operating really powerfully through 
through that medium, through that church. And the freedom that people experience from addiction and codependency and and all sorts of different issues and the health that was generated out of that, I, and there's just no denying how powerful it was. Uh, and yet, at the end of three and a half, four years, a couple years into my marriage too, um, something else was calling to me. Something was... I, I was no longer fitting and I, I worked quite a long time to try to understand what that was, what wasn't fitting, what wasn't working for me, where I needed to go next. And as I began to explore those things, then I started to encounter the walls. Then I started to encounter um, what I see now as the immune system of the church, the immune system of culture, really, because church is a culture. So I brought, you know, what I what I began to experience was that as my um, as my questions my questions provoked responses, and those responses were oftentimes at odds with each other. And I also I also discovered that there was a limitation to how far my questions were allowed to go, and uh, before they would be reined in, very simply with, well, you've got to have faith. So well, why this? How come this? How come these three things don't seem to to speak with each other? How come this concept and this concept seem to be at odds? Why, why is there, what's the paradox? Why is there paradox around that? Do you, can you give any specific examples of what you were asking? Well, some of them is really basic questions like, um, you know, the, the issue that of original sin and, and loving God and, um, uh, you know, how could a loving God, well, here, here's a great paradox to me is this idea that faith spreads from hearing the word of God. That's a, that's a scriptural passage. It's like a, yeah. So what does that mean? It means that we go out into the world and we share scripture, we share the Bible and that in hearing that somebody latches on to that. There's some part of them that corresponds maybe a little bit like the experience I had in the mountain and being here in North Bend, something opens up as a result of hearing the word. You're, you're in the presence now of some truth that is spiritually infused. That's one of the ways that we think about it. And now that can cultivate faith. Except where it runs into trouble, I think, is that uh, there's also this idea that, that uh, salvation comes from trusting Jesus, and that's not something we come to by ourselves. So that there's this idea that that you cannot, by your works, by what you do, by your actions, get into the kingdom of God. That that's not how it works. It's just a free gift of grace. And I was at odds with that, you know. So so why is it that that this free gift of God, bestowed by grace, is extended only to those people who hear the word? What about these people who live in various communities where they've they're totally um, cut off from that. What about people in the in the Americas who, for a long time, were living by a totally different cultural and religious system? Meanwhile, Christianity was blossoming on this other continent. Um, it it seemed strange to me. I just I couldn't rec reconcile that there. And so as I began to ask questions about it, that's where I started to either encounter incredibly sophisticated. Um, incredibly sophisticated explications of all of the different factors in order to sort of make the shoe fit on the foot, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? It was like, 
well, we're, we're going to, we, we already have our basic premises established, so now let's go and let's, let's make the facts fit that premise. Let's make our philosophy fit that premise, right? Instead of opening up into still greater question or being at all comfortable with paradox. And even those people who would say, oh, I'm really comfortable with that paradox. Um, to me, that felt a little bit like saying, it was, it was again like, well, you just got to have faith. Like these, this question, don't allow this question, in other words, to work its way into you or to produce any result that moves you away from this established set of beliefs and and doctrines and ways of being and thinking about the world and so it 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 continued to work on me you know the sense of like i'm not eventually i became i came to feel that i was no longer in integrity with myself because my um uh you know it, it, be, it began to be my my questions my thoughts my experience was further and further inward it was no longer you know, I, I discovered that um, my belonging, I was like that, the, my belonging ticket was somewhat rescinded. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, if you're going to head off in that direction, that's outside of the the bounds of of this this community. We can't hold that. How could you be a pastor struggling with these questions? Um, and especially as I began to change my mind about things, well, then now I experience the dilemma of, I have 140 students who come every week and I deliver a message and I don't know if what I, I know for sure that what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking is at odds with what I'm actually teaching and or being asked to teach. And that was that was really a, the beginning of the end of my experience in the church. Yeah. And that's tough to be in a place of leadership and struggling with the content that you're mm -hmm. actually leading with and mm -hmm. the culture doesn't support you in a place of struggle like right. you need to be on point with these beliefs mm -hmm. if you're going to be here leading these people right and if and if you're questioning that then that's when you started to feel like Mm -hmm. your welcomeness <laughs> yeah and it, it it's interesting you know I, as i reflect back on it now and i haven't thought about this until your your observation just triggered it for me that the ironically the best i think the best place i could have been in terms of leadership would be to have been transparent and open about my struggles that that actually opens up a new conversation and that's that's a huge aspect of what leadership is, is opening up space, breaking open the possibility of a new conversation to arise out of the ashes of this old story that no longer works and or is too small. And, you know, that's what I see as being the great shame of that chapter in my life is that I I, I actually didn't have I didn't even think that that was a possibility. I couldn't open myself up to the possibility that. I could, by sharing authentically my heart and where I'm at, where I was at in terms of uh, what didn't fit, that I that would have opened up. Who knows what that could have opened up in the community? But instead, I, I just retreated and I said, okay, well, they won't accept me for who I am and what I'm about. I have to leave the church. So that was more of your idea of, of what they would do if you would bring up these struggles. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, looking back on it, and I've had some conversations with some of the pastors since then and realized that I really didn't give them the opportunity to say, 
what they really thought or felt. You know, I, I made a lot of assumptions about what was possible. And they've told me that really we didn't, <laughs> that was painful for us. You know, the, the experience we had is that you suddenly started to go through these changes and rather than sticking it out with us and trying to work with us in that, you just went away. Knowing what you know about organizational structure now, was there an opportunity for you to do that and was that welcomed? I think that what was probably most likely that would have happened is that I would have left the leadership um, position and could have continued on in conversation with with the community in some way but there was another wrinkle to the story which is that as I got further and further away from what felt to be true in my life around what I believed I also got further and further away from my marriage and so at a certain point I realized that I had been harboring a secret life of thinking about secret fantasies of how I wanted my life to be and who I was becoming, et cetera. And I wasn't letting my wife in on that either. So I, I not only was I not letting the church in on it, um, or when I did, it was sort of like, you know, these little tests, right? Like, is this accepted? Can I, can something happen here? And nope, nope. Okay. Well, I'm going to retreat. Um, I did the same thing with, with my wife too. I didn't speak about what was really going on for me. And our, we began to have troubles more and more that were around um, her wanting there to be more self-disclosure on my part and intimacy. And of course, this is all hindsight now, but she wanted more of that. And I was giving less and less and less because in my mind, it was getting, becoming less and less safe to be authentically myself. Um, but none of this was like conscious for me. I didn't know it. I just was doing my life. I was just, you know, living my life and sort of going along without reflecting on the patterns. I didn't, I didn't have that ability yet. I hadn't cultivated that. So all I was doing was living moment to moment, day by day, not seeing how my, my incremental withdrawal was creating a lot of the stress that I was trying to flee. <laughs> um, and you know, I don't, to this day, I don't, I don't think looking back that the marriage was possible to be saved nor the, the, could I have maintained my position as a pastor in the church. I really don't think that that was possible, but I do think that both of those transitions away from those relationships could have been handled a lot better. Because for a lot of kids, for example, a lot of the youth that I was serving, their experience was that they had somebody who was always on their side and, and always connected via the heart saying, Hey, I'm with you and I'm, I'm going through life with you and you can count on me. And I just disappeared. Um, so yeah, I have, I look back on that and I say, yeah, that could have been different. could have been done very differently. And if you think about it, you're in a leadership position at a really young age. So you're kind of, you're elevated and you're put into this position that's elevated mm. that, is supposed to have all of this wisdom mm -hmm. that you're imparting on everybody. Right. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're growing up. Right. You know, <laughs> so it it almost sets itself up for, you know, a more dramatic shift, you know, to the next phase mm -hmm. because of all, the, all of those factors. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it definitely did. And I think that's one of the reasons why I feel so passionate now. And maybe passion is not even the right word. It almost feels like it's sort of like an urgency, inner urgency to to serve people now to be looking at that that the journey that I went through as a possibility. How do you do that well? Because I think that's actually, I think there's a pattern here that's human and and one that we are coming up against. We're cut, I think most people live their life in a way which is looking for spaces that can hold them and contain them that uh, that will protect them and keep them safe. That that seems to me to be the way that we're doing it. It's like, well, what, where can I both be myself and also be a part of something? And we're willing, and I think this is my story of, of um, sort of conforming to the the religiosity of the of christian tradition was i was willing to to say well what's true about me what's essential and what's what's um uh what's what's sort of coming from my soul is not as important as me finding belonging and acceptance and so i was willing to take a lot of those qualities and push them away to different to separate myself from my essentialness and yet I was experiencing um, I was experiencing those voices in me those parts of me the especially the wild parts um, the wild parts that as a boy found me you know running and howling like a wolf through the through acres and acres of forest um, that part didn't go away uh, as much as I tried to amputate it as much as I tried to be civil be a civilized um, you know, leader in the church. Fit the part. Fit the part, fit the role. Uh, that vo- Those voices, there are many of them, got louder and louder and louder and louder. And, they, and I think that what, what we live in is a culture where we, many of us just continue on to fulfill the roles. And, and the, the whole world is, is tailored. They tailor roles for people and say, okay, come fill it. You're welcome to come fill this suit. You know, you're welcome to come fit this role. And we accept that. We think that that's what life is or that's the possibility that life offers us is to, well, where can I find the right suit of clothes that somebody else has made for me that'll fit me? I find that in the Christian community, rites of passage aren't something that are done very well or Mm -hmm. intentionally. Mm -hmm. Um and it's something that I'm trying to do for my kids mm-hmm. at these different stages of their development and their growth and to mark them in a way to say, you're, you're entering something new. You have to let go of the past, mm. and now we're moving into something new, and we're going to mark this, and, and we're going to do this together. And, and, it's going, and, and frame it in a way that's um, safe, you know, for them to do, but also has a little bit of uh, element of risk too, mm. you know? So, so it's not something that's done at home, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you know, at, mm. at home where, you know, here we're going to do this thing and then we're going to eat a piece of cake, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So for, for example, my, my, my son, my eldest Orion, he turned 10, um, in 2015. So we wanted to really mark that. And, you know, 
Mm. It's 10 years old. And we had told them, the kids, because my, my second is only a, a year and a half younger. So we talked to them together quite often about these different stages. And so when you're 10, you're going to get that dagger mm. that you've always wanted. Because mm. they, I don't know why, but the <laughs> you're a boy, right? Just you're just went, like, yes. <laughs> yeah, give me the yeah. dagger, right? Yeah. So, so we said, okay, we're gonna do we're gonna do this wilderness experience. So I took him out into the Mount Baker backcountry for a backpacking trip. So we had done you know camping, car camping, and things, and then um, this was you're carrying your pack up this hill. Yeah. And we're going to get there, and we're going to do this together, and it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. Granted, I'm going to bring Jolly Ranchers so that <laughs> <laughs> you know you can have one when you, when you need one along the way. So we made it up there, and he carried the he carried the backpack up there, and 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 then we got to our campsite. We built camp, and I was trying to get him to kind of participate in like putting the tent up. But he was running around, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. We were we were, it was so beautiful up there, mm-hmm. and. And then he kept on going, when's the dagger? When am I getting the dagger? When am I getting the dagger? So it's like, wait, we got to set up. We got to get, you know, um, we're going to be here for a while. Just, it's okay. So so we got everything set up. We, uh, you know, set up the camp stove. And then and I said, okay. And, you know, I pulled out the dagger. And, and then he opened it up. And, I mean, this is a legitimate dagger (laughs) it's brand new super sharp you know it's probably about 10 inches Mm -hmm. oh yeah and he pulls the thing out and you can just see you know the look at his face is is he's put you know it's twinkling and he's just like and 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 it's almost a little bit overwhelming Mm -hmm. like i'm holding this thing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that can do so much damage Mm -hmm. and then and I said, it's really, really sharp. And he puts his finger and he runs his finger along the side and cuts his finger. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. He starts bleeding. And then he's like, oh, it's sharp. And then he sees the blood coming down his hand. And then he, he's like, I'm not ready for this. And he, oh. he, he hands the dagger back. And I was like, nope. Mm. This is your dagger. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is yours now. And you're old enough for this. And, um, you know, along the way, you're going to get hurt. And that's okay. And that's just a small little cut. And guess what? I have Band-Aids. Mm. And we're going to put a Band-Aid on that. Mm. And you're going to keep your dagger. Mm-hmm. And it was such a great moment. I mean, it couldn't have worked out any better than that. And and I feel like we need to do those things. And we need to have mentors, you know, who have more wisdom than we do, who've been through different phases, who carry us through to kind of the next phase in, in a way that is meaningful, but it's also safe. And, and it gives us that sense of solidarity. Like we're all in this together and other people have been in my shoes before. Mm-hmm. Otherwise it becomes very isolated and confusing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think so much of your life can pass by in those roles you know, just filling those roles and, and trying to make it fit within the current environment instead of allowing things to to pass mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and new things to emerge. So all that to say, um, have you have you experienced something similar in terms of the lack of mm-hmm. of rituals within 
Oh, wow. Well, the you Christian know, community, or and and, and and I wouldn't say just the Christian mm-hmm. community. I would say in culture in general. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not doing this very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, wow, your story provokes a lot in me. One is, one thing is the, I did not have that experience with my own dad. So I f- immediately feel, wow, I feel a lot of hope that, that you and others like you are, are having cultivating relationships with their sons and daughters that have that kind of a profound holding because that you're, you, you have allowed your son to experience danger to any, and his own power. Um, but in a way that is, is safe in some ways, right? It's held by you, but it's like, Hey, you're ready for this. This is, and I don't think we do that. Right. Because we, we just minimize the potential to cut yourself. You know, we, we, we don't give people the dagger. We, we give people uh, gloves. (laughs) 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 That seems to be our initiation experience. It's like here, this will protect you even more. And eventually you go into life swaddled, you know, uh, behind layers of, all kinds of things. Uh, in the church, I what your story reminded me of actually was, um, I had never thought about it this way, but I put on an event as part of the arts ministry where we had people come up on stage and discuss their woundedness and their scars and to talk about how God had healed them and how their experience with God had healed them. And it was a, for the most part, wonderful event, except for in the middle of the event, Somebody got up there who was not prepared. We, I had not prepared them, neither myself nor the other people who had, who had um, done this event. They, we had not given them the, the requisite holding space to really tell their story in front of an audience. And so the story was incredibly painful and went on for a really long time. And I'm looking around the room and people are looking at each other like, oh my goodness, this, is, this should not be. This person clearly needs to be in a holding, a safe holding space that is not this room, pouring out their pain in a way that we cannot respond to it. It was a, it was not a safe space for for this person to do that, and particularly because it was a it was a performance. It was in some ways a performance piece, right? So um, it went on and on and on, and I'm I'm seeing people are shifting around in their seats and they're looking at each other, and there's a tremendous amount of discomfort in the room and not a strong uh, possibility of of putting some context around it or helping it go to the next step and uh, you know did it do more harm than good I think to have her up there telling her story and I I don't think so but um, I remember afterwards after we were done the pastor came to me and he said let's talk about what you could have done let's talk about that it just sort of reminded me of your story in that uh, I was taking on a lot of responsibility in in this moment and um, had somebody come along behind me and and help initiate me into the experience of saying, you know, what could you have done? How could you have intervened in this situation? How could you have created a safe space? And I realized that I was afraid. I had been afraid to do that. I hadn't stepped forward in a way that um, could have taken care of the whole. So I don't... I'm not actually, as I'm telling that story, I think I'll need to think about it a little bit more for me to connect the, the through line. But I just mm-hmm. have this sense that, yes, there are places in the church where um, where there is tremendous holding 
I think. And I, I think one of the one of the places that we one of the ways we're initiated is into seeing the world, uh, especially for people who who don't like myself. I didn't grow up in a home that had any sort of profession of faith. And I was really starving for this conversation about awe and wonder and bigness and the divine and the spirit. And I, I was, I really wanted that. I wanted that to be available in discussion and I wanted that to be available in community. And the church provides that for people in a way that is really beautiful. And, and I think if, if there was no progression for your son, for example, from that moment, if that was as far as he ever got and he never graduated to doing other things that are have great responsibility, like driving a car, then we would say, Oh, Joel, you started out so great. You know, like you had this marvelous experience, but your son can't be 10 forever. You know, he needs to go on and drive a car and he needs to do his life and make decisions for himself. And you can't be there in that space. And I think that's where most of our sort of religious cultural institutions have gotten to these days is that we, we actually graduate people into an adolescence that we then hold them into. We, we, we say, stay here, um, stay in this safe space. We're glad that you've gotten this far, but we don't want you to, to go too far. So that's what that's what comes up for me is that, that, mm-hmm. that there's and there's a lot of there's a lot of ways in which our culture is set up to do that outside the church, and it's sort of one of the thing the big aha moments for me was that as I began to explore away from the church, um, I remember having this incredible breakthrough moment. I had been involved in this community consulting project where those of us who are interested in helping nonprofits in the Seattle area community got together with some senior consultants who were very good at something called process consulting or organizational development, um, where we could partner with them and they could sort of show us the ropes and it was volunteer and, um, seemed at the time like, like a, a really great experience. And it was, uh, but I remember one day we're sitting there in this large circle of people who are gathered to discuss, okay, so how do we actually serve people and organizations to make change? And because we were working with nonprofits, we said, well, let's sort of sketch out the territory here of what it, what nonprofits are. Who here has had experience with working or serving nonprofits? And most people raise their hand. Okay, great. Well, we're going to, we're going to source the wisdom of the room to see if we can get a, a good picture of what a, nonprofit organization is what it how it works um what are the things that we wish we could change about it and what are the things that are great about it talk amongst yourselves so we broke into small groups and we're having these conversations and then we surface now okay great we've had our conversations now let's let's sort of hear from all the different groups and let's see if we can construct this picture and so people are reporting oh yeah this is what i love about nonprofit. I love the fact that it's purpose oriented, for example, or, oh yeah, this is one of the things I wish we could change. It feels like 20% of the people do 80% of the work and it's really hard to engage people, especially volunteers to do anything, uh, beyond this sort of small subgroup of people who feel like really passionately engaged and on and on the list went. And I remember this aha moment for me was looking at this list as it, as it emerged and saying, Oh, wow, this is the church. All of these things that I love about the church are on this list. All the things that I wish were different and could change are on this list. And I recognized that the the difference between 
say, the nonprofit world and the church world was that in the world of church, all of those things that were pros and cons were ascribed reasons for being that were spiritual. It was like, oh, those come from spiritual things. The reason why you can't get volunteers to engage beyond that t- magical 20% is that because people are sinful and selfish and da-da-da-da-da. Oh, the reason why um, people have a profound experience when they go to church is because God's spirit is there and they're connecting with God's spirit rather than, oh, they're connecting with purpose. There's something that's drawing them there. So the aha moment for me was there's a pattern here. And this pattern is being replicated in all kinds of different areas around the world and all kinds of different organizations, not just this church, you know? So for me, in my church experience, I was saying, um, I was, what I was, the pattern is what I was calling the church, but actually the church was the pattern, if that that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And that was a big one for me because all of a sudden it was like, wow, okay, well, not only do I not know so much about the world, but uh, it, it awoke in me this sort of innate sensibility that I'd always carried around or sort of suspected, which was that essentially sort of at bottom, there's some essential patterns and qualities that unite us as humans. And if I want to, all of a sudden the world opened up for me. It's like, well, now I can work anywhere in the world knowing that these same essential um, truths are available anywhere. You know, it's not just like if I want to work on meaning and purpose and, and living a fulfilling life, I don't have to do that in the church. It just, it just sprung open the gate, right, for me, um, which eventually led to me getting my master's in um, organizational development in at Seattle U the following year, and that was another profound moment. So now I'm learning well how there are ways in which um, these patterns, there's this language there's a language around and a skill set around intervening in systems. So how do you, how do you actually meaningfully engage and interact in a system that can help it shift and change? And then in the church, I was, I was, uh, really uncomfortable with this definition of leadership that was based mostly primarily on charisma and getting people to fall in line with the, the doctrinal tenets of the church. It was like, well, if you're going to be a great leader, then here are the hallmarks of being a great leader. People are living and believing in this way and they're doing it because you are burning yourself out largely because you're, you're sort of, um, I th- in the way that pastors operate in the church, they are, um, they fill a lot of gaps. They support a lot. It's, it's a little bit like trying to hold a bunch of people up who are expecting you to hold them in ways that they ought to be holding themselves. Um, the, it's the pastor's job to mediate and serve, uh, to be that main conduit of my relationship with God and the personal growth and the, the, um, the things that each person needs to do, they, they project onto the pastor as being the solution. That yeah. was my experience. So it's a distortion of responsibility in a, in a sense. Yeah. They're not being responsible for de- developing themselves when they can live vicariously through their pastor. Well, and the pastors have a lot of, of uh, incentive to keep that going because your tithes feed us. So we need to make sure that we're growing our audience. We're always concerned in the church. We were always concerned with, with growing our audience and growing the number of people that we had in chairs every Sunday because that's where we made 
the majority of the funds that would put food on our own tables and continue to keep the doors open and pay for the lights, etc. So there's a huge incentive on the part of pastors to maintain that 20-80% cap. If everyone in the church was fulfilling their from a place of passion and excitement and um, growth, uh, their own spiritual journey. If they were really, um, uh, if they were encouraged to do that, then it would be a completely different system, and maybe not one that could support the kinds of behaviors that both continue to nourish the, the pastoral vocation, but also I think you can't ignore the fact that that or at least I can't ignore the fact that being on stage and being the one to dispense wisdom and from on high job, from on high on the stage from the was, lord i loved it yeah oh i fed off that i loved it i loved it i still love to speak in front of people but um but uh yeah i mean the size of my audience is how i gauged my effectiveness or how many people lined up to talk with me afterwards and say that they had had a, a profoundly moving experience based off my words you know that was really so how can you ask people to let go of that that's really difficult I think. And also for yourself when, when you're being affirmed externally. Right. And that sort of becomes part of your identity. It's just it's a cyclical pattern where if that's part of your identity, then how many people are listening to you is, is going to matter even more. Right. Yeah. It's like my ego is only as big as the number of butts in these chairs. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah. And, of course, there's lots of health in there too it's not it's not all um it's it's not all lack of of health right it's not all diseased it's um it's great to be affirmed you know it's great to have your gifts be used i i was good at what i did and i had a place in a community and that's a that's a healthy thing too i think it's helpful though to be able to name those patterns because like for you you had this other experience and then you were able to connect the two and go okay now I have this different perspective you know you sort of had this one perspective of being in the church culture and then and then you had this nonprofit experience and now you saw it differently and now you, you've expanded your idea of what those structures were and then you're you're seeing different patterns and you're putting that together I think for a lot of people they don't ever have that experience mm -hmm. and especially when you're living in a very insular you know community where you're maybe even going to the school with the same people that you're going to church with and you're never sort of having these different experiences that that kind of give you mm -hmm. a, a different perspective so i think it's helpful to name the pattern and those things that you recognized that um exist within church community and exists within the nonprofits, and then would you say also exists within the corporate structure oh absolutely yeah, yeah. i think it's a it's very human mm -hmm. it's a very human pattern I, I think one of the things that gives me great hope actually is that there's so much similarity in the human experience mm -hmm. especially in how we structure and organize our cultures our societies our institutions that there's there's so much similarity and that gives me a lot of hope because it tells me that that we have a lot of common ground to discuss if we can apply the lens that helps us to see into the opacity of systemic structures because they're very they're, there's a in in systems thinking you think about it like an iceberg that that 
most systems only present, you know, the very tip, right? But what re really lies underneath the surface is the greater mass of the system. And what we do as a culture right now is that we observe the tip of the iceberg and we say, that's it. So we look at events that happen on the day on a daily basis and we say, oh, um, I'm going to ascribe the reason for that event to this cause. This effect is, is coming from this cause. And we're, we're doing it without much insight into the larger structure of how the system has created that behavior. So if you look at different behaviors in the world um, that, that, gosh, I'm trying to think of some that we could tackle that wouldn't be too big. But, um, but uh, for example, uh, to go back to the church analogy or church environment, um, why is it that people just continue to show up and they don't get involved? Why is it that they come on a Sunday and they just sit there in the seat and then they leave as soon as the church is over? How come they're not being woven into the fabric and life of the community? What's what's going on there? And what we do generally, we have a habit of mind, which just sort of uh, latches on to the first most obvious cause. And in the church, it was, well, those are people who and then we ascribe that they're that they're lacking in some way, that they're. Um, they're selfish or they're consumerist or they're this or that and the other thing. Meanwhile, there's actually patterns going on in the larger church structure that eventually I think the power of systems thinking is that we come to see how, let's say I make an intervention to go and, I, and I'm approaching this family and I want to talk to them about why they only show up, you know, every three Sundays and they come and they go. Um, I may create, I have no idea how the structure of, church is interfacing with the rest of their lives for one um so i'm gonna go in but i have a lot of assumptions around why they are showing up and by the way they're spiritual and by the way they're they're attached to uh this person's value set or character or level of spiritual interest right so i've got all these ideas about who i'm talking to meanwhile i have no idea what's happening on their actual life i have no and, and my interest as i approach them is not to connect with them authentically and understand who they are and create a, a connection a bond but rather to make sure that their butt is in the seat more often but but in my mind i'm thinking this is all for the glory of god i I, these people need to be in church. They're going to be spiritually fed. I need to shepherd this flock, right? This is how we think about it. This is how I, I've often been exposed to the thinking in the church is that I'm the shepherd and these are my sheep and I need to make sure that the sheep are in the pen reliably every Sunday and that they're helping out in a ministry. So, so already I'm create, I've just created, in my opinion, I've actually just created the the one of the major patterns of why people don't show up to sit more often in church and, and um, engage is because they're not met authentically. They're not met as people who have uh, great depth and individuality and creativity and uniqueness and a whole story and life of their own that I'm interested in getting to know. No, I'm treating them as an object, as a, as a sheep, and I'm the shepherd. So I'm going to continue to intervene and create the patterns that are showing up in the world, you know, that, that, that people are really disengaged at work, for example. So 70% of people are disengaged and, and one out of five people are actively like rooting against the company that they're working for. Right. <laughs> so what do we do as managers? We create these engagement programs. We say we have to engage our people because we have to ramp up productivity because our productivity is suffering. We're not 
competing we're not etc so let's engage the people and it's the it's the same pattern it's trying to maintain the system and keep it chugging along and doing what it's supposed to do be doing reliably from a driver's seat position looking at how we can manipulate people into becoming more engaged so most managers the, the grand majority i think are not so interested in connecting with the employees that are one two three four levels below them because they're because managers have the especially middle managers have the horrible experience of trying to be they're caught in the middle you've got executive leadership at the top who's telling you you've got to set these targets you got to meet these these goals etc and oftentimes middle managers see the obstacles as being the employees that work underneath them who aren't doing it the right way who aren't getting with the program who aren't smart enough who aren't creative enough who um gosh it takes me so much mental energy just to to make sure that everyone is marching along to the the beat of the drum that the whole organization is is asking them to 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 march to so our engagement programs end up creating less engagement because people sense it they say you're not treating me like a person you're treating me like an object and that will never lead to transformation that leads to further disengagement so it's ironic and th that's just one of the patterns i think that you see repeatedly showing up i think you see it at the level of our civil engagement that our politicians are treating the larger majority of people in the um in their constituencies as uh sheep that they're trying to shepherd and and the and we sheep are saying um you shepherds need to lead us better and your leadership is going to be we a great leader is somebody who reduces the complexity who creates a clear direction and sense of where we're going to be who can remove ambiguity who can keep us feeling safe so uh, imagine being from a leader's perspective right and 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 you've got to deliver all of this to the masses of people who are expecting it of you if you don't continue to produce that sense of security direction and stability you're going to get you're ousted you're out of there that's the same thing that happened to me in the church it's like uh i was entering an ambiguous space i didn't have a sense of direction i didn't have a strong sense of what was true or what was not i was opening up in myself this wider space and that was not safe and so well we can't have you in leadership if you're having these questions if you're engaging that way so th those are the patterns i think that we see over and over again and just to be clear what you just described as a leader were you describing that from the perspective of the people or are you describing that as as the way that you think leaders should act oh i i think that's the perspective of the people great okay yeah. just wanted to clarify yeah yeah to simplify the complexity and to make them feel safe you don't really believe that leaders are supposed to do that well i think leadership is something that anyone can exercise and that leader is not actually a, a role it's not um uh, in fact i would prefer that we stopped calling people leaders because that is a role that's an uh, that's an assumption of a role but leadership is actually a verb that anyone can do and it's uh it's ironic because i think we need to start developing in our language this ability to look at authority and leadership as two entirely different things authority is 
we put people in places of authority because we're expecting those things I listed early, earlier, that, that um, safety, predictability, mm-hmm. directionality, all those things. That's what we put people in places of authority to do. Um, but leadership actually is exactly the opposite of all those things. And I think that's, that's one of the most powerful insights that came out of my studies and my, my work in the world is that actually leadership destabilizes. It brings people into a space of ambiguity. It opens up danger. It uh, asks more of people than less. Uh, and I'm just reminded of your story about your son, you know, that you're actually inviting him into leadership. You're saying, guess what? You can't take back the, the fact that you make an impact in the world that have real consequences. Uh, I'm here to support you in how do you're going to navigate that from here on out. Like that's a new level. Welcome. Like you're, you're welcome to this new level of responsibility in life. That's what I think leadership can do is it can open up spaces where people it doesn't uh, see, see when you engage, I, I think when you engage with people from a leadership perspective, no matter what level of authority you're at in an organization, when you step in and you say, I want to open up a new conversation or a new possibility here that is going to take us in a direction that is not comfortable and not expected. We don't know what the answer is going to be. Um, here's the kicker is that, uh, if you're in a position of authority when you do that, you won't maintain it for very long. So if you're in authority and you're saying, we're going to head into this ambiguous space, now people will say, no, thank you. <laughs> we're going to continue to do the things that ameliorate the symptoms of what you're calling forth. We're going to continue to put in place programs that are going to continue to isolate and define and create targets and measurables and the sense that we know what we're doing, where we're going, and we can when we can be expected to arrive there. Um, we don't want any of this ambiguity stuff. We don't want any of this unpredictability stuff. So next person up, next man up, right? Right. So if you're a, a person who is in an authority position and you begin to exercise leadership, then your position of authority is often taken away. And the higher you get in the authority, the more stable things are expected to be. That's why CEOs, for example, it's like the company's not growing. I think Tim Cook recently just took a 15% pay cut. Okay. uh, I just heard this recently because um, he did not increase the earnings or the revenue of Apple by a certain target amount. And so as a result, the board cut his pay. It's like saying, hey, you're responsible for this. Wow. So if, if Tim Cook wants to lead Google, and perhaps he is, or Apple, Apple yeah, uh, into um, territory that's, that's away from what's the established norm of growth, you're going to pay the price. And how long can you continue to do that before the board says you're out and somebody new is coming in? Probably not very long, especially since his pay cut was just a result of a little bit lower <laughs> earnings. I right. mean, we're not even talking about any sort of transformative change in their culture. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But it's this is a great example of the larger system is paying attention to certain indicators that are meaningful to them. And if you jeopardize those indicators, then you're out. And I think that that's, that's uh, a huge part of where we're at in the country and in the world today in 2017 
um, is that we're, we still don't have insight into how necessary it is for us to be living in ambiguous space. We don't, we don't have, we're not aware yet of the benefits of true leadership. You know, we still equate leadership with predictability and authority and the, those things. And that's where I think teal, teal organizing really takes a dramatic leap forward in the larger um, uh, blah, 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 what to say about it. Um, well, it's teal is, is not just addressing symptoms. It's, it's addressing structures. It's addressing paradigms. Right. It's, it's really operating from a completely different place than, mm. than everything we were just discussing in terms of you know, cultural environments, organizational environments. Mm-hmm. So how did you first come across Teal? Yeah, I came across Teal as a result of um, like probably the third profound dissatisfaction in my life. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd had, as I was telling you, I, I went to school. I was like, oh, wow, there's this incredible, uh, you know, adaptive leadership and systems thinking and these patterns that are showing up all over the place and at different scales. And now there's a language and there's a, a way to talk about these patterns and a way to reveal them. And, and work with them and there's a methodology to to intervene uh, and there's but yes and but um, there's also uh, a systems thinking saying that you learn really quickly which is that structure drives behavior and I began to work in corporate America especially locally here to Seattle in technology companies and discover that the structure was driving the behaviors that I was trying to change. And that unless I could change the structure, it would continue to perpetuate itself in terms of these sick behaviors that keep showing up over and over again. This disenchantment and lack of authority, lack of passion, lack of leadership, um, disengagement, etc. It's It's not going anywhere as long as the current structure is maintained. And I started to see myself as I was doing these projects of six month cycles where we would do some, make some profound shift or change, increase trust, transparency, productivity, fun, you know, doing working with teams and having them transform only to see at the end of that six month cycle, some new manager come over the top of the organization and obliterate. The work that was done and I saw that people were becoming pretty disenchanted with my work because it's like well why would we bother to go through this transformation if it's just gonna get wiped away in six months uh, and I myself started to feel like I was a mechanic essentially trying to trying to keep the machine running despite itself trying to keep this um, trying to keep this uh, extractive uh, 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 entity that seemed suicidal in some ways, doing exactly the opposite, continuing to perpetuate patterns that were leading to its sickness over and over and over again. Why am I allowing this to continue? Why am I working on this? I, I don't want to do that. So it was I was d- in despair for 
about a year because I didn't see any possibilities of doing anything different. I was going on lots of inter informational interviews with people who were in my field, organizational development, uh, people in leadership. And I continued to uncover in those interviews the same secret heart in the people I was talking to that that their best work was being wasted, that that they couldn't do the things that they loved, that they were working continuously in the grind of these machines. Um, having having only the barest hint of what they did persist. Meanwhile, everything was just getting recycled into its into the sickness. And I and I thought, oh my God, I can't. I don't want to do that. And I had a lot of people in my life who were mentors who were saying in the organizational development space who were saying, well, Chris, this is what is. You just gotta you gotta be content with what is. You have to make your peace with it. You know, this is the way the world works, and you're going to have to find a way to put food on your table working with this system in all of, of its imperfection. And I really believed that. And it that increased my despair and my anxiety because it, it just seemed untenable to me. Like how, so, so what are my other options? Well, I just invested in this education and I, um, you know, I, and I had passion and I saw the possibility of, of this and I don't find a place where it can live and breathe in the world in a way that's meaningful. What do I do with that? Do I go, Maybe I go live on a mountain or maybe I go shepherd real sheep, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> on some Andalusian mountainside or something like that. I have no ideas if that's even compatible, but, um, but, uh, somebody said eventually one of my mentors, um, my uncle, an OD professional for many, many years and, and retired since said, well, Chris, if, if you're not going to take my advice, and you're not going to um, find a way for yourself to be at peace in this system, uh, maybe you should go looking for places where people are doing something differently. Have you ever thought of that? And it was this amazing revelation. All of a sudden, I had this energy. I was like, yes, wow. What if there are people out there who have done things differently, who have organized their structures in a way that respects people and planet and can can live into this potential vision of the future for themselves in their context, in their place, despite being surrounded, maybe being islands in a culture that is otherwise sick, extractive, et cetera. What if they're out there? I had no idea. And then I had this vision uh, of myself as being the one who would go out there and find these places and unite them uh, by finding the patterns uh -huh. intrinsic in each and raising that to people's awareness. And I imagined that I would write a book and that, <laughs> you know, uh, I could see myself. It was really like, oh, wow, I see this vision of myself as this sort of visionary leader that, um, or a person exercising visionary leadership, I should say. Uh, but I was still really, I could still really see that. It's the aha moment where you have all those, like a flood of energy before the work has begun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And it was driven, I think the rocket fuel in that was seeing myself as becoming some sort of guru in that. Mm -hmm. And I really had this sense of like, oh, that's going to be great. And I'll develop a niche for myself and a name for myself, right? And then, uh, so I, what I did was I started to hunt around the internet and via LinkedIn and, and spread the uh, message to my colleagues that this is what I was interested in doing. And, and did they, had they picked up the scent anywhere 
of any organizations who are doing things like this. And uh, to my shock, uh, almost no one had, which was surprising to me. And maybe it shouldn't have been. Um, but I found that most of the um, most of the leads I had were sort of coming from the technology company from or company sector from like Lean, uh, Kaizen, things like that. Uh, but that wasn't good enough for me. I was like, man, this is not it. This is, you know, a process, a really great process within um, the culture and the current way things are. But I'm looking for something that's a complete reinvention of that, right? Yes. <laughs> and along the way, somebody said, well, there's this book coming out. Maybe this is what you're talking about. It's called Reinventing Organizations. And I was like, oh, I can't wait. There's a book coming out. This there's is before. Yeah. Okay. It's like, oh, this is fantastic. Also, part of me was like, oh, no. See, somebody beat me to it. Right. Here's your book. <laughs> right. This is the book I <laughs> yeah. wanted to write. Yeah. It's funny how many people I've talked to, by the way, who have shared that um, with me. But uh, something similar where they said, oh, yeah, I read Fred bo Fred's book. And I thought, why didn't I do this 20 years ago? You know. But, uh, yeah, the book came out and I picked it up and I read it. And it was... A revelation it, it was like this is exactly what I was looking for and and one of the things that was so revelatory about it was that just as I had hoped for and expected there were patterns among these pioneering organizations who had chosen to do things differently um, with a another set of values and another broader more complex perspective that showed up as uh, common and it was that that's all we need, right? We just need a pattern. We need something to say like, oh, okay, it's it's showing up this way in many different places. Then we can work to recreate that pattern in some way. I think that's one of the reasons the book has done so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gives it material. Like it's it's it goes from concept to okay, this is happening in the real world this way, and 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 does a great job of actually simplifying something that's really complex. Right. And something you can and you can, and you can grab and you can apply it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, suddenly you can see a destination. I think too. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you if you say to somebody, "Hey, this whole way of working that we're so familiar with, this hierarchical pyramid structure, command and control, predict um, culture, let's do something different." Oh my goodness! Suddenly you've opened up this totally blank space where trying to get people to do something different from a where they don't know where they're going where they can they they're pretty sure they know what the pain of the change will be if we do things differently these are the things that that will start to hurt um and we're not sure what the benefits will be where we're going that's a recipe for there's very very few people in the world who have that sort of whatever that mindset is or that ethos that says yes to that kind of a challenge especially when their livelihoods are at stake um especially when they're leading these big systems. Because again, like authority, right, will is is perpetuated by control and stability and directionality. And so now you're saying, yeah, let's let's jump off. Let's go away from this into something completely unknown. That's just, that's going to be impossible for most people. So I think what the book do, does is it says, let we're going to leave that territory behind and we're going to go to this new one. It becomes sort of a promised land, I think. Um and I think what most people expect is that that when they read the book, it's something I've noticed over and over again, is that they look at the processes, the methodology, the practices described 
in the book and they assume that there is um that it's that it's a journey of like just a few steps like okay well we're in this extractive sort of command and control system if we adopt holacracy then we'll be teal then we'll have all the benefits of being this teal organization and i have come to discover that that's not usually how it goes um but uh, it's like we're gonna dip our toe in the water here and we're, we're gonna some of this sounds pretty good you know right the empowered employees like we, we can we can all agree yeah. you know that that's something we want but it's it's like you're taking a fragment of of what the the big picture is and you're thinking that that's going to be enough right exactly it's a technical in the words of sort of adaptive leadership it's it's a technical fix to an adaptive problem it's a it's a, assuming that by using this plug and play system or by reading the book and deciding that we're going to um, reconfigure our structures and processes to be more like that that we're going to become what it is that we want to become which is this teal way of working and doing and living but um, there's an adaptive process behind that which requires learning on everyone's part and it turns out that it's a learning that goes against the cultural grain that we are steeped in from very very young age so where i'm at right now is seeing that there is a profound shift that can occur that the book has opened up but it's that middle space it's that almost um the desert of transformation metamorphosis and reconfiguration that is uh where it's it's so it's such a beautiful opportunity for those who have the um, that vision in mind to be able to lead their organization or even themselves into the space of unknowing and, and liberation and freedom and, um, and reconfiguration of the self, all your habits, all of your, uh, automatic responses, your mental models that are just assumed, um, opening that up, opening what Teal does is it really Teal organizing does is it, it creates a destination that brings us into the desert that we wouldn't otherwise enter. And I think that's one of the reasons why the why it has so much power and potential as a movement to shift society and how we how we even conceive of being human in the 21st century. That's where I get the most juice now nowadays. I love it. And for anyone listening, we're talking about reinventing organizations, which is a book that's written by Frederick Lalu. Am I saying his name right? Yep, Fred, Frederick Lalu. Yeah. Lalu, okay. Mm -hmm. And w when did he write that? Uh, I think it was 20, was it 2014 when it came out? I think. So it's fairly recent. 2013 maybe? I mm -hmm. don't know. Sorry, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> so let's give people an overview of what teal organizing is. Right. That's probably a good place to start. Uh, well, I think teal, the word teal is probably what most people originally say, okay, what, where does that come from? What's why teal, why this color? Um, and it's based off of the work of Ken Wilbur in integral theory and Don Beck, Claire Graves, etc. in, um, uh, spiral dynamics 
and their work matches with recent developments in psychology that numerous people have described begun to create a language around the way in which people mature uh, in terms of their ability to to cope with complexity ambiguity paradox etc uh, this developmental model of of the human psyche of human consciousness and what it says is basically that um, that as we live in the world we are confronted more and more often with a greater level of complexity and paradox that we have to do something with and that we have two choices that we can either take this uh, the data the, that the world is of experience that we're having in the world and we can either twist it to conform to our current map of the world or we can allow it to change the map that we make we can incorporate it into new a new map that's more complex that can handle more a broader level of ambiguity and as we do that we do that in stages throughout our life uh, so when you were telling your story about your son i was thinking suddenly his map of the universe is is being altered he's um and then i'm just imagining this but i imagine he's 10 years old and and how he thinks about himself is somebody who can't handle the responsibility of having this dagger he's drawn to it he's excited by it he, he sees the potential of this of himself he imagines a new self-concept um, and he imagines an, another world concept where I have some more agency and some power and dad has a little bit less in my world and when he come when it comes time to have it and he actually experiences the sharpness of it and feels the pain of it what does he do with that well that's what he does the same thing that that all of us do especially at first is that we retreat from the pain of wow my world is changing it's shifting my self-concept is different I can't handle this right and in a lot of our cultural institutions our response is that's correct you can't we'll continue to support you in the world and continue to confirm the world that you knew uh, but there are people in the world great fathers or guides elders etc um, or spaces in the world where people are invited in a safe way a safer way to explore what it could mean if their world was bigger and their self-concept was different so uh, what we discover is that there's actually sort of um not only is this pattern does this pattern occur at the level of the individual where you're continuing to grow and and remap the world but as we do that over time we create more and more institutions structures etc that can enable that in others so um, there's this trajectory of human civilization where we the sort of the center of gravity or the mass of culture shifts into these uh, stages of complexity and, and development and every time you do that it requires new actions and new behaviors every time I take on a new concept of self and world all of a sudden the way I interact in the world and how I interact in myself and what I do changes to match that's a really difficult transition it takes usually five years at the minimum for people to go through the various stages of development and we've mapped we've mapped out several and we know that that um, that there are some patterns again that show up so when you're uh, when you're in your adolescence you 
tend to see things more in right and wrong, black and white, um, might makes right, etc. And when we go back in human history, we can see that there is a that that in our development as a species that these patterns prevailed, that this level of consciousness is where people largely rose to and stayed, and that that created organizational forms and institutional forms that matched that level of individual human consciousness. And so we see tribal bands, we see, we see these feudal bands where you have sort of the most powerful person is able to exert their will over the others and that they, they put people in place. They have their cronies that they, that they give power to and that they give the spoils of war to who help maintain their might and they rule through power and fear. But then as we, as we advance through human history, we see that new cultural forms uh, became more usual. They became more, um, uh, they disrupted that old tribal band. Now you have tradition and you have, well, power is distributed not from whoever is the most powerful, but who is sort of ordained by the tradition itself. So you have these, um, you have uh, hierarchies where, and you have the, the sort of the um, uh, feudal sense of divine right, right? God, king, nobility, the peasantry, etc. Or you have God, the uh, the chief apostle, the pope, the the clergy, etc. So you get and 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 all of these things are perpetuated by tradition. By well, he's my heir, you know, or she's my heir, and so my power is vested in her and people buy into that like that that's that's the concept of it. it's not just that the king says that this is the way it is it's the people say that that's the way it is well and, and then it's the king. reinforced by the things that they wear and, right and the way that they're presented you know with robes and garments and what have you right exactly so it's yeah you, all these cultural signifiers go into reinforce that and i you know i was just in um I was just in in Europe where you wander around and you see these huge castles and cathedrals, especially the cathedrals, really reinforce this image of look at the power and grandeur of God who has invested so much power and authority in this leadership. It's very, um, I mean, I can just imagine and put myself in that space and be like, wow, that what, what would it be like? Can you imagine challenging that? You know, can you imagine saying no to that kind of authority? It just would, it would seem like you were going against God himself, right? Mm -hmm. To me, that's what I imagine. And yet, as the world changes, as human populations grow, as uh, new technology is introduced, new ways of thinking, uh, as cultures mix and mingle, as they war, the world changes shape and human civilization changes accordingly and that's where we are now we've we're at this next level of design of human design which is the the corporate structure it's the meritocracy it's no longer are you given authority and power based on some sort of divine continuum but you're those who have uh the greatest merit or who have earned their way into that position of authority yes you get now now it's Anyone can work their way up from the bottom. It's the American dream. It's, uh, and this is all co- coming back from, um, you know, one of the fascinating periods of human history is when you have uh, in France, 
right around the time of uh, the 1600s, 1700s, you have this new idea emerge that uh, that what gives people power is their is their conviviality. There's this word in French. I wish I could summon it, but it, it means are you convivial? Are you can we can you get along? Can you sort of um, can you be met? And and if you can, something new is possible. All of a sudden, we're having these conversations in in bedrooms, you know, called the salon. And new ideas are forming. You have the Republic of Letters where people are writing to each other about philosophy and art and science. Not a term that they had at the moment, but um, these developments. You know, you have the humanist movement come out of this time period because people are seeing that, oh, you know, there huge possibility exists in, in people's creativity and intelligence that helps us move forward much faster and sometimes at odds with the tradition that the the traditional monarchy or religious orders want to maintain this sort of stability and they're they're actually um, many times opposed to what the public sphere is beginning to work with in fact that's when you begin to see the public sphere emerge as a concept uh, so from that public sphere from that idea that there is a sort of an intelligence and creativity that comes from people and their own merits now we begin to reward people based on the most intelligent and creative among us uh, and it destabilizes old power structures no lo they no longer have our ear they can't we don't listen to them and uh and that's where we're at today so we we're living in these merit uh, meritocracies really that's what corporate america is that's what our political system is and there's lots of reasons why um why things are the way they are that are you know, more complex view of reality, but that's sort of the pattern, right? That we're seeing. And yet we're running up against the limits of that. So I, where we're at today is in a place where thinking of the universe as a, um, a machine that operates predictably that we can, um, manipulate and thinking of people as merely cogs in that machine, that's on its way out. That's dying. We're realizing that doesn't work. And something new has to come forward, has to come out of that. So the, the colors actually come from, I just realized I didn't explain that the, the colors are just handy labels to talk about the different phases of human history and, and development of consciousness, where you've got red is sort of that tribal mm -hmm. um, mentality. Uh, Amber is what we call that traditional mentality, and orange is the consciousness that spawns the meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and you've got um, you've got a handy little sheet here that evolutionary breakthroughs in human collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of Frederick's blog posts recently. I just grabbed it from there, but I f I find this is uh, really helpful and and kind of understanding it in like a one-page snapshot mm -hmm. of where we're at. We've got the the red, which is the metaphor of the wolf pack. Yeah. Oh, these are fantastic. These are the guiding, <laughs> yeah. these are the guiding metaphors for how people organize. Yeah, and, the red wolf pack. And then there was there was a timeline associated with this in the book as well. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the so the red existed. I think it was like. 10,000 years ago. Yeah, and you can go back. I mean, one of the interesting things about that timeline, if we can summon it in listeners' 
eyes is um, that it's an exponential curve. So it starts out, we're at, uh, we can go back, well, recently, actually, I don't know if you heard this, but there was evidence of use amongst hominids of fire about a million years ago. Wow. So this idea of the human being being somebody who can shape and manipulate their environment and have achieve a certain level of learning and use of tools, et cetera, fire a million years ago, right? And what you just pointed to is that this concept of the sort of tribal wolf pack organizing, that that actually came along about 10,000 years ago. And it came along as a result. So, so well... Just take a pause there and realize that the vast majority of human history, right? If you go back to, say, a million years, or even if you just go back 200,000 years, uh, is relatively stable. Hmm. That all of these developments in human consciousness and behavior and organizing, et cetera, are really stable for a really, really long time. And then 10,000 years ago, something happens, which is the invention of agriculture. And it totally changes everything. But what we... We also, another wrinkle is that that change in agriculture coincided with a moment where the ice ages, the, the, the glaciers and the ice age receded far enough that people began to live in one place ah. and cultivate grain and domesticate livestock because they no longer had to go such vast distances. And then the next thing that happens is that the ice age returns. But now you're stuck because you have these population centers and ways of life that are based on a, a reality that no longer is true. The ice is coming. And so what do you do with that? You, it, it requires you to double down on your agriculture. It, it, now mm. you've got to produce more and more food. Now you get this concept of totalitarian agriculture where we obliterate uh, everything around us that doesn't help us produce more food and keep our populations up. And ironically, people get sick it, you know, the the domestic lifestyle of living with animals and staying in one place actually produces more suffering and a less health and people decline in their overall well-being in that period of time that's fascinating yeah super fascinating so you get this red picture of reality where well how do you maintain order and structure when you're no longer a nomadic band when your populations are now so large that they require more advanced coordination and uh, and structured in order to subsist while this this new concept comes along called you know the 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 tribe or the the chief mm -hmm. uh, and the soldier and the wolf pack is a great example of that. I also find it interesting that these paradigms are still you know prevalent today. So the current examples are organized crime, street gangs and tribal militias. Those right. are pe those are people still operating within this paradigm, this this way of thinking. Right. And they and they do it because they are in world spaces, contexts that where that is a really adaptive way of doing it. Right. It's it's actually the best way f for some situations to operate. Right. And 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 conditions haven't changed sufficient that would ch that would change their way of operating. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it hasn't nothing in the context has has begun to reveal itself in a way that would require those street gangs and militias and mafias, et cetera, to to make a leap, to make an evolutionary leap. And so the environment that they're stuck in would be one of scarcity. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. 
where they're they're basically operating out of fear of not having enough or right not not enough territory uh not enough business if you ever watched the wire on hbo i haven't oh it's a fabulous systemic exam you know you've you've got the war on drugs is basically the uh, in season one hbo is not paying me to say (laughs) the war on drugs is season one and then season two you get the you get commerce okay and then season three you get uh, well i'll forget the order but eventually it takes on government and it takes on education and it takes on um uh yeah government education and the news the media oh wow and each season looks at it opens the viewer up to a new layer of complexity seeing that well why are these people selling drugs and why can't we seem to win the war on drugs and what the what the show does is it shows you these layers of complexity and context the larger system gets wider and wider in your view until who's good and who's bad and and the, the complex morality of it all is just, it, it, for the viewer, it's hard to take in. You say, wow. And a lot of people say, oh, we're screwed. <laughs> you know, this can never be changed. Um, because systems are really, really, really hard to change. Mm-hmm. And they require a shift of context. They require, oftentimes, if they can't be renewed and changed from within, then they require the external circumstances to put enough pressure on them to finally require them to, to respond in dramatically new ways. That's when you get learning. And that's what we're seeing today, the, the constraints of our current system, uh, the context, the misuse of the earth, climate change, et cetera, is beginning to be hard enough, difficult enough for us to, now we're, we're looking into the future and we're seeing the possibilities of what will happen if we continue to do things the way we are doing. And we're saying, oh, you've got to change. Mm-hmm. But that's true for all of these stages, amber, orange, and green uh, on the way to teal. Mm-hmm. So if you to conjure in the the mind's eye of of people listening, so you have an exponential curve because for those first one million to two hundred thousand years, things were relatively stable. Human civilization and culture maintained itself because it didn't have that pressure that created the agricultural revolution. After the agricultural revolution, now the pressure is actually somewhat internal, in that human beings are growing more and more food and their population is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and now the boundaries between these civilizations now we're coming into contact with each other now we're we're growing large enough that we have um we have conflict and war and and uh various aspects of life that didn't exist back when we were hunter-gatherer nomads but now our new way of being that we can't reject we can't go back to being nomads because that does, that's just not available to us. There's not enough territory, food, et cetera. We have to adapt to new ways of organizing, and that's where you get amber. Now you have the army. The army metaphor. Right. And you already touched on this one a little bit with the... So um, a current example would be the Catholic Church. Yeah, and, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I think uh, I... I know I'm very good friends with some people in the Catholic Church mm-hmm. who, um, who would say, yes, absolutely, this is exactly right. But there's also quite a renaissance happening in many of these cultural institutions that are based more on tradition, uh, the ch- churches in particular, church and religion. Right. It's almost like e- even if you're in an organization that's operating at w- one of these other color levels, there's still this unconscious sense this of the dis-ease that you just described 
which is we have to pay attention that our planet is changing mm-hmm. at re- more rapidly than ever. We have to do things differently. These organizational structures are not creating um, lives for human beings that are thriving in any way. Mm-hmm. These corporate structures are not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have depression all over the place. Mm. Um, I mean, you can you can name any one of these symptoms of our current culture, and and it's a disease that that you can't really hide from. So if you look mm-hmm. at someone or talk to somebody within the Catholic Church, they may their structure may be operating within the amber paradigm, but it's they're still feeling this movement of something has to evolve from here. Right. And especially in today's modern society, people can be willful participants in organizations that inhabit all kinds of different levels too, right? So mm-hmm. they might come from a red family and they might uh be serving in an amber church and they might be working in an orange organization and they might be a member of a community that's green and have different aspects of themselves, their roles, their identities in each of those. And now they're informing each other. Now they're allowed to inform each other. That's one of the things that you can't get away from is that each one of these stages offers something really powerfully um, liberating Mm -hmm. to people. You know, it, it was, it was liberating for the amber consciousness to develop out of this kind of might makes right wolf pack mentality there there was some significant liberation there now you have more stability and scalability right right um and at less personal cost less fear of death reprisal there's a beautiful study done by um oh I, i won't get his name right but the name of the book is uh are better angels, I think. And what it does is it looks back um, at how likely were you to die a violent death back in these wolf pack days right, mm. compared to now. And what they what what the research has discovered is that there's an exponential decrease over time as human civilization develops of your likeliness of dying a violent death. And in fact, today we look at uh, things like Iran, um, the way in which we we imposed economic sanctions in Iran. I don't think that would have been available to us 20 years ago, 30, 50 years ago, because globalism, globalization has created conditions where now you've got to play by the rules or you can't participate. You know, we no longer have to go to war with you. We can just withhold you from the global economic uh, system. And so maybe, maybe we're creating the conditions on the planet because we're so tied, because we're so integrated. Well, we won't have war the possibility of war will decrease now granted it's wars happening all over the planet as we speak but these large large scale wars um it's no longer you you're no longer incentivized to do it you're connected into a larger whole so that that's what we see here as we advance through the timeline is that uh that the this the the globalizing um the momentum of globalization continues to drive human beings more and more quickly into these evolutionary leaps. So the, the distance between red to amber is wider than the difference from amber to orange. And the difference and the, the, the orange paradigm has really only been with us largely for a few hundred years and has really been institutionalized in this industrialized system that we've been living in for 150. And now we're making a shift already. So you can see that that it's an exponential leap. Um, 
and the 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 timing between those leaps gets gets tighter and tighter all the time right so so red was maybe 10,000 years ago and amber uh, when did amber actually come into play well now amber is sort of like uh, you look at that more as like the empire era the empire monarchy yeah monarchy and empire so we're going back you know here's where i reveal that i'm a poor student of history but um <laughs> i'm not gonna say anything <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> but you know maybe a thousand years uh mm-hmm. bc maybe a thousand bc is when it uh, now you get rome rome becomes sort of the template empire yeah uh that we're all familiar with right and but we move from amber to orange which is this machine metaphor so the breakthroughs are what it says here is innovation, accountability, and meritocracy. Right. So there's our our world seems to be dominated by this, by an orange perspective or an orange worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're at this place where uh, we're really reaping the benefits of this public sphere, um, especially in the internet age. I think as we get more and more connected and that public sphere grows and grows and grows, it provides more opportunity for people who have something unique to contribute. They can step forward and find a place where it can be contributed. Now, the difference is that we, we take people's energy, time, uh, sense of passion and giftedness, et cetera, and we try to manipulate it to fit into a structure that perpetuates itself like a machine. We say... Um, here you are with all your ne- unique beauty, talent, uh, feeling, etc., cetera, um, breadth and depth of experience. What we need you to do is we need you to fit into this cog called the job description, and we need your behavior to be constrained to only that which the machine can use and manipulate. Um, so leave everything else that doesn't serve the machine at the door. We don't need any of that stuff, right? Uh, and I think that that's why... Uh, t- what we're seeing and what we're sensing in terms of engagement, the lack of engagement that people have. Engagement is not the problem. Mm-hmm. Engagement is a problem that's invented by the machine. The machine says, how come my the resources that I'm ingesting <laughs> are not being uh, maximally ingested? How come I can't digest these quote-unquote human resources in a way that continues to perpetuate my life? Um, what's wrong with them, Right. But from a from the personal perspective, the engagement is not the problem. I, it, engagement and performance, et cetera, people really, uh, they want a sense of purpose and meaning. They want their lives to matter. And unfortunately, one of the byproducts of this machine um, mentality is that we have uh, perpetually perpetuated this cultural amputation of that which in our young people is not going to work or fit in the machine paradigm. And human beings are messy, right? We're, we're messy and we're wild. We're actually quite wild. And so I think it's really interesting that the modern psyche actually is incredibly mechanistic. It's very mind-focused, right? We, we've created these... Um, these structures that are cut off from our instinct cut off from feeling cut off from any of the things that make life truly juicy and desirable and we have created people we have sort of factory we've created our schools to be little factories that 
that quietly civilize or colonize people into things that can be digested and used, human resources, et cetera. So that we're feeling the pain of that. I, you know, the, the fact that people are disengaged, like I, I could frankly care less, could not care less <laughs> that people are disengaged. Um, because the answer is not to engage them in a system that's broken, right? I, I just heard uh, yesterday that maybe it's a sign of health that so many people are not adjusted to an unhealthy system. The fact that we're so unadjusted, it's so not a fit for us. Maybe that's a good thing, right? So maybe, maybe disengagement is actually a sign of our readiness to do something different. Maybe we want that number to go up. Pain can be a great motivator. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it certainly can be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if let's just uh, finish out the uh, the colors here. When I so the next one, so we went through red, wolf pack, amber, army, orange, machine, and then we move into green. Yes. Which is a family metaphor, and when I read the green one. I was like, this is, what's wrong with this? Like, this seems mm. like the right, this seems like it has it all. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't until I read further that I realized that there were some things that were still lacking. Right. Or, or yeah, where it wasn't like a complete reinvention mm-hmm. with green. It was still operating um, with much of the machine metaphor, but but with some good things coming into play here, like the empowerment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the egalitarian nature of green mm-hmm. is a is a step forward. Yeah, and the stakeholder model, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, triple bottom line accounting, those sorts of things. So green is green is an interesting stage because <clears throat> depending on who you ask and which model, they don't all align. But there is this transition that we make in our consciousness that's a pretty significant one. That up to this point, up till the green point, um, we we have each of those stages red and amber and orange are actually part of they're like little waves in this much larger wave which we call conventional thinking and green or the edge of green to teal depends on who you ask is really the beginning of this next big wave which is post-conventional thinking and it's really about what is your reference point in the world what when, when we talk about those maps, the map making and my self-concept and my, my map, um, there's this concept uh, called field dependence, which is really entrenched in that first wave, that first big red, amber, orange wave that suddenly is uh, reconfigured when you jump to that next level of consciousness. Most of humanity has not done, made that shift. Most of humanity is incredibly field dependent. Field dependence is this idea that that people's reference point is outside themselves, that their concept of reality is based on their context, not on what they feel and experience internally. How this plays itself out is that most of us go through life up to a certain point um, believing that the goal for us is to fit into the social context so I, th- I think about it sort of like, um, like imagine, imagine that you, that culture is like a fire in the middle of the night, right? Uh, 
if you're imagining that you're living in a cold environment that's dark, then fire is this really wonderful invention that humans came up with. It cooks our food, so it keeps us keeps us safe from disease. Um, it provides warmth in the middle of the cold. It provides light. Now we can see. We can actually operate in our environment, and uh, it protects us from things that are outside that are afraid of the fire or that can't approach. Um, so culture is like a fire in that it w- needs to be perpetuated. You know, pe- and, and so what people do within the circle of that firelight is that they uh, ascribe to each other roles and rules that perpetuate the growth of the fire. So you, we, we really emphasize people who can make really good axes, people who can sharpen those axes, people who know how to, where to find the trees, who cut wood, who stack it. You know, we create systems that ensure that the fire continues to burn and burn and burn. And we want it to get bigger and bigger and bigger because it's going to extend our influence, extend our security and stability in the world. So that's where we're at as a culture right now, is that we have a way of living in the world. We create gross domestic pro- uh, profit, GDP. And uh, the more growth there is, the higher we build this fire, the safer we are. If anything jeopardizes that fire, if any person jeopardizes that fire, they're threatened with banishment into the outer darkness. It's like, if you are not going to play by these rules, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure you stay. So that's where we have these subtle pressures of, um, I'm just reminded of this brilliant movie fences that Denzel Washington, Viola Davis are in together where, uh, it's back in the fifties. You have this African, African American man who doesn't know how to read or write. And his son comes to him and says, um, I want to go to college and I have this opportunity to play football. And he says, no, the, the dad says, absolutely not. I refuse to sign the permission slip that'll let you go do this. Take this opportunity because it's not an opportunity for you. The, the white man is going to continue to perpetuate your smallness. He's not going to let you take this football thing seriously or this college thing seriously. What you need to do is you need to get a trade. And he enacts violence against his son hmm. in, in trying to keep his son safe so that the boy won't wander out of the circle of firelight. What's known, what's safe, what's what what gives us warmth and protection don't go out there into the darkness and don't jeopardize the fire whatever you do right so this is again is like that that authority leadership the difference between those things right people in authority are put there because they're the best at maintaining all the systems that keep the fire growing and stable mm-hmm. and if you dare suggest that to do anything that jeopardizes that get out of here and we create tales. We have these folklore of what happens and what we call people who decide to opt out of that system. You know, we 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 call them hippies, right? Like, or um, or we denigrate them and say that, uh, oh, you want to be a starving artist, or that like, you'll never make anything out of yourself. Or um, one of my the trends in the culture currently that I find so odious is that a lot of people are saying, oh yeah, I'm gonna. I'm going to leave this the cultural fire of the sort of corporate monolith and I'm going to become an entrepreneur. But what they're what they don't understand or what we're struggling with is that this fire that we're talking about on a cultural level also exists inside themselves. Right? That there's things that we don't allow ourselves to feel, become or experience because we feel that our ego, our self, our self-concept, etc. will be threatened. 
if we allow any of those beasts <laughs> that are out there in the fire, um, out there in the darkness to approach. No, we want to keep those things at bay. So any part of ourselves, the beautiful parts of ourselves, our hearts, our, uh, our wildness, our creativity, our bigness, we exile that very early on because that's what's happening in our culture. We exile people who don't fit into that, that pattern. So that there's this, there's this, um, I think this is where we're at. Mm -hmm. And so what Fred has done with the teal stuff is he has said, or he has discovered that there are organizations who are doing things differently that don't service the fire. They don't, they're not paying attention to, to keeping the fire growing as the number one sort of conceit of existence. They're saying there's other things that we need to be paying attention to. And I think as a result, people sort of see that glimmering far off. When you're in the middle of the fire, something interesting happens to you. Your senses become adjusted, right? If you ever sat around a campfire, your eyes are drawn to the flame. Your eyes shrink. The pupil shrinks so they can take in less light. And now you can no longer really see the stars. And you can't smell maybe the grass on the wind because you're saturated with smoke, right? Your senses become um, tuned to the fire. And one of the challenges, I think, that we need to begin to explore both individually and corporately, by corporate I mean all of us together as a society, is um, we need to come to our senses again. And in order to do that, you have to be able to feel safe enough and supported enough to leave the fire. And I think that's what Fred's done. It's like this little light glimmering mm -hmm. out there. Maybe it's a North Star. I don't know. But he's he's managed through his work um, and through the work of these pioneers who are doing something differently to suggest that there's something out there to, that we can move towards. You know, all of a sudden our world has grown by leaps and bounds. It's like no longer just the circle of fire. Now there's something else and it's intriguing. So I think what we're seeing now is people are seeing that we're running out of trees. <laughs> we're saying that right. in order to keep the fire going, we've decimated the forest and it's not going to continue to support us like this. We need to do, we need to grow. We need to change. Um, I see a lot of people in the millennial age group, my age group, uh, thinking of themselves, trying to adopt the entrepreneurial mindset. And I really applaud that. And at the same time, I think it's a trap because it's this, this entrepreneurial mindset is, only it's it's like in my mind it's like trying to live at the outskirts of the fire trying to like draw enough support and nourishment um heat and warmth from it to keep you safe uh but meanwhile there's this role that people begin to play of the entrepreneur that becomes their new circle of fire right and now they can't escape that uh so i i see a lot of people are you know i have conversations with people who say hey i'm really interested in this teal stuff and and they're millennials and they, um, but they've still bought into, they still refer to all of the values of the firelight for themselves. So they measure their worth based on their money. They measure, uh, they have a standard of living that they feel they can't give up. Um, they're really depressed because they, they are still using the sort of cultural signifiers of orange um, as their self-value referent that keeps them from taking the plunge into wondering maybe you're not um maybe your value is is uh intrinsic maybe 
there's other ways of being in the world that you can't even imagine. I think that's the darkness aspect, right? It's like I'm walking into, it's like, it reminds me of the dark night of the soul, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I, you, you have to wander into unknowing. The uh, indigenous populations around the world have called this the dismemberment process. It's this idea that we go from what's known, we go from what's stable, and we are we allow ourselves to be pulled apart. We allow ourselves to get to a point of dissolution so that we can recover or remember those crucial aspects of ourself that are our next way forward. Um, so there's plenty more to be said about that, but I, I think green is, so to, to get back to the stages, green is this idea that maybe I don't have to buy into the fire. Maybe I don't have to buy into all of the sign uh, significators that tell me what my value is in society. Maybe society is really messed up. Maybe it's, maybe it, uh, doesn't actually offer me, um, what I need. And so where do I go next? That's the dilemma of green. So the, for green, what it, if, if I'm no longer believing that society can offer me the things that I need or has all the answers or by playing with the rules, by playing by society's rules, I'm going to get where I want to go. Well, well, now what do I depend on? And that's why it's terrifying. Um, because I was told by my religious institution that I could trust this God if I obeyed these rules. I was told that I would get a promotion and eventually retire and have power, influence, and authority, etc. if I played by the rules of this game. But that's not true. I've run up against the limits. Now what? And so the green tendency then is to go inward and to say, maybe, maybe I am the reference point. Maybe what makes me happy or satisfies me or provides me with meaning or, or a sense of purpose. Maybe that's ultimately where I need to be going. Maybe that's, so we, we turn our attention away from the fire and towards this internal compass that's leading us away from it. Temporarily, I'd say. Because mm -hmm. um, at some point we come back to understanding that there is a relationship between um, these new powers that we develop away in the darkness. We learn to, we learn to see constellations in the night sky and navigate by that. We learn to smell the wind and taste the water and feel the grass underneath our feet. We learn to navigate the world using all of our other senses. And now the opportunity, once we've done that with, with some level of mastery or comfort, is to be able to offer it to others too. So at some point we have to return to the fire and at least stand on the edge and be able to beckon people out mm -hmm. to some new adventure. It's like the, uh, the end of the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, where there's right. the gift you know yes the, yes you know it's it's not about you mm -hmm. at the end of the day it's it's about you know how much can you give back right but you can't get there right i, I see people struggling a lot with like service i was talking to a mm -hmm. young woman the other day who said why don't i feel called to serve because i value service but why is it that i look out at the world and i say screw you guys <laughs> you know <laughs> like why is it that that despite the fact that i feel i should be more driven towards service. Why don't I feel that? And I, my sense of it is, well, you think you should be, you think again, you're, you're saying my referent point of my worth and value is what I contribute. You've just applied it now to serving rather than making money or et cetera. And you, your, your ego structure is still bound up in, I have to produce something, which is still the industrial lie, right? Mm -hmm. It's only what comes out of your 
interior sense of joy and wholeness. Mm -hmm. Like I got to give this because it just lights me up, you know, like how, why would I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't have, I, it's a little bit like the difference is saying, I don't need to contribute anything in terms of an outcome. I just need to be myself doing the things that light me up and I'll naturally create, uh, spaces for others to do the same. There's this beautiful, like symbiotic relationship between a person who's wholly themselves and deeply grounded in their own existence and their own joy and sense of freedom and others who, who are doing the same. I mean, imagine that it's, it's a little bit like, um, uh, well, if I can, if I can get a little deeper here, yeah, let's go <laughs> um, <laughs> deeper in the kind of the idea. So around teal, mm -hmm. there's the, the three breakthroughs of teal are self-management, wholeness, and evolutionary purpose. Evolutionary purpose is one of those things where when people hear it for the first time, they're like, "Why is that word evolutionary there? I don't understand." I think that's what we just started to tap into, is that there is this natural process of evolution occurring in the world that. Um, creates two different things reliably all the time, you know, for 3.8 billion years. It's created shockingly more and more levels of diversity. So if you, you look at the animal tree, the phylum, etc., it continues to branch and branch and branch and branch and branch. More and more diversity all the time. Life is adapting not only to the conditions on the planet in terms of its, its geography and climate and weather, but also the continuing differentiation of other species. And, and interestingly, not only does it create more and more diversity and differentiation, it creates more and more interconnectedness. That the, the more diverse the biosphere becomes, the more interconnected it becomes, the more symbiotic it becomes. It's not survival of the fittest, actually. That's just one way of thinking about evolution that's not in, by any means the fullness of the picture. Because um, many times the adaptive solution for an organism or a species is to cooperate. So, so what we're looking at is adaptivity. You know, you're getting more and more adaptive, and the the relationships between each organism is becoming more and more tightly bound and symbiotic and cooperative. So, how I think about evolutionary purpose and how I what I would love for every person on the earth to discover in themselves and and be able to operate from is this perspective of the self as having some some in, intrinsic essential giftedness that can be discovered developed and embraced that will naturally just by you being fully in joy and connectivity and wholeness with yourself lead to incredible wholeness and creativity and and passion and powerful powerful uh, work um the key is not to say, I have to find that thing. I, I have to find that outcome. I want to serve these people. I want to do X, Y, or Z as an outcome, but rather to go within and say, what is within me to do what lights me up and brings me joy? And then to just find ways of exercising that. Uh, and that's part of my story of how, how I am where I am today is that I noticed that, that throughout my life, I've always sensed into with greater and greater clarity, what, what, like this inner compass, where does it want me to go? Um, this idea that, that my destiny or my shape 
is somehow already intrinsically in me. And all I need to do is I need to find the right conditions for it to come out in that next flowering. Right. Like, uh, but I, I think a lot of people are a little bit like my dad's tomatoes. My dad <laughs> tries every year to plant mm-hmm. tomatoes here in the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, there's not enough sun to really produce a, a bumper crop. You know, when he goes through the catalog, he's like, I've got to get the tomatoes that are going to be ripe in 60 days. None of this 85 day stuff. Like that's a dream I can't even fathom. Right. And some days, some summers he gets this amazing crop and other times he doesn't. That's I think people are like that. I think people contain within themselves this, this natural pattern or dynamic that if you put them in the right conditions, the right soil, the right sun, etc they will naturally unfold and produce fruit. Amazing stuff. Um, my uh, uh, animal for me that I draw a lot of inspiration from is the hummingbird. And one of the things I love about the hummingbird is that uh, the hummingbird is responsible for 8,000, in North America, 8,000 species of plants. Their, their life. Their, Whoa. Yeah. So if it wasn't for the hummingbird, 8,000 species of flowering plant would not exist. And yet the hummingbird does not at any point in the morning, to the best of my knowledge, get up and say, oh, my God, I've got to pollinate 50 different plants today. Or I've got to like <laughs> I've got my quota of a thousand blossoms that I need to pollinate. No, the, the hummingbird just does what it does and follows the desire for nectar and self-sustenance, et cetera. You know, a lot of people, like, they vilify this idea that we need to be supported by our environment or that, you know, they, they call that selfish. You know, is a hummingbird selfish because the hummingbird wants to support itself and, and gets, I imagine, a lot of joy out of drinking nectar? Like, no, like the, humming, the hummingbird is, uh, should follow its passion and its, and its sense of what is joyful and juicy. And I think the people are the same way, mm-hmm. you know, but we... We believe that we, I mean, we've, we've, we believe that we need to obey these cultural rules that continue the cultural fire burning, and that means that I've got to decide if I'm going to be an axe grinder or if I'm going to be a stave maker or a woodcutter. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's I, hard to cut wood as a hummingbird. Super hard. Yeah, and imagine, <laughs> imagine if the hummingbird was told that, okay, yeah, great, we we love that you have that long beak, but. We really need you to stay on the ground. Yeah. Like the, like, <laughs> can you imagine like a little hummingbird dragging yeah. its butt around the ground? We love that you can fly any direction you want, up, down, right, and left in circles. Right. But we don't want you to fly. Yeah. We, we love this pollinating thing you do. Yeah. Keep that flying stuff at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, don't bring it up. <laughs> oh, man. That's a great example. Yeah, I, I think it's a powerful one. I think I think um, that you know how it scales to organizations is this idea that yes, we are focused on purpose. That if in the larger ecosystem of commerce, or of the the uh, systems that that create the world, if we're focused on purpose, then we'll be rewarded. We'll be rewarded by things like profit because. Our purpose is going to motivate us to do the things that will bring reward from the world in the same way that, yeah, the hummingbird is going to continue to sip nectar. And as a result, some wonderful things are going to happen. Plants are 
can continue to be perpetuated that, by the way, support the hummingbird, right? So there's this reciprocity. Mm-hmm. And teal organizations are, are focusing on purpose because they understand that it's not their job to ensure their survival amongst a field of competitors. It's their job to bring value into the world, which will recreate or create reciprocity. Uh, it's a totally different way of looking at the world. Yeah, well, purpose is it's somewhat of a buzzword in mm-hmm. in the corporate world. You know, we have purpose. We're purpose-driven. We're a purpose-driven company. But I think it does lack that, like it's a it, it lack of systems purpose, you know, or that mutual reciprocity between the levels of the nested systems that you're, you're actually involved in mm. and and where you're where you're living do you when you talk to organizations about purpose do you bring that into that conversation and do you think that's the only missing component for how we're approaching purpose cuz you know companies are, are doing these purpose and values things yeah. over and over again every five years they go okay well we're we're, we've at, we're some, somewhere else now mm-hmm. we need to do this again so then they go through the whole process of yeah. figuring out their purpose and their values and then mm-hmm. you know how, how do you how do you create continuity in there well I, the beautiful thing about teal is that each of those three breakthroughs i mentioned liberates the other mm-hmm. so for those organizations who are focused very strongly on purpose they are going to continue if they're still embedded in that orange paradigm of command and control hierarchy authority they are still going to perpetuate those behaviors processes patterns etc that aren't aligned with purpose and aren't aligned so you're you're going to continue to get we say one thing and we do another and that's where self management in the teal paradigm becomes so important is because it allows people to use that both the uh, external aligner that north star of what we're all here to do in terms of our purpose and their inner guidance their inner compass uh, and their ability to know right in the moment what the terrain is that they're operating in so i I think about it in terms of navigation and that, Mm -hmm. that yeah i've got this north star i've got this internal compass both are lined up we're heading in the same direction but I also, as an individual, am more acquainted with than anyone else with the territory that I'm currently in. So, yeah, my North Star is calling me in this direction, but there's a river across my path. So what do I do in order to get over there? Um, I can't swim in it. I'm going to have to go west for a ways until I get to a shallow part, and then I can cross over and I can get further aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the What's difficult about the um, metaphor is that orange structures are a little bit like you've got a field general who's in the back who is getting reports mm-hmm. you know you got the field scouts out there who are sending reports this is what the territory looks like this mm-hmm. is what what's going on and i won't move i won't do anything until i hear a response back from headquarters mm-hmm. and so then there's this chain of of command and every time that chain happens Every time that information is exchanged, it becomes stripped down. Of in, it becomes less rich. So eventually, by the time all of these reports get back to headquarters, they actually don't describe the territory very well at all. And yet, 
the general is is or the central brain or whatever the um the you know the the, the intelligence is the the central intelligence is mm-hmm. these are the smart people by yeah, the way. yeah the smart people <laughs> yeah. Right, or the authorities or etc like they are going to relay commands back in the other direction you might find yourself standing at the bank of that river being told jump jump in and you're saying that's impossible i don't know how to do that that can't be done that's not the right way why don't i just go this way no we have orders this is what we're doing so you 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 start to see that there's like if you're wanting to talk about purpose and orienting towards a north star um you have to grapple with the fact that the structure and this orange structure is trying to uh trying to manage how people go about heading in that compass setting with a bunch of assumptions that are not that are that are going to keep you from doing that right the, the assumption being that the people who are right there in the middle of the territory are not equipped to make a decision about how to deal with it right so that's a major mental model that is going to continually get in the place of purpose if you consider that purpose as a verb. If purpose is an outcome, something like, a, okay, we're going to get to X, we're going to do Y, we're going to be there by a certain date, time, etc. Um, then you're trying to coordinate action to achieve that outcome. But if you think of purpose as a verb, then the job actually is to liberate as many people as possible to act with purpose, to actually, to verbify purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they can do any moment of of the day, I think, or, or from anywhere. Um, yeah, so there's an empowerment for the guy standing on the river because he has he's standing there. He has he has the eyes to see the river. Mm-hmm. He's he's been the one who's been walking up and down the river. He's the one who knows probably what's best in this moment, what to do in terms of getting getting across. Right, or at the very least. Instead of stopping there at the bank of the river and waiting for orders, what could this person have been doing? They mm-hmm. could have been testing all kinds of different solutions, mm-hmm. right? They could have been working on a solution a long time ago. So that's where um, things like Agile and Lean in the Orange mm-hmm. uh, territory, that's where they, they work really well is that they liberate people to try and iterate. You know, design thinking is all about, you know, you 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 don't know enough. So you go about, you know, trying to create solutions and you iterate until you get something that works. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so powerful and why it's so attractive to to the world of orange. That's why it's and, and it is. It's a wonderful thing. It's a mm-hmm. wonderful methodology. I think the problem is that um, that if we add another layer to our metaphor, our general in the metaphor wants to stay in power. <laughs> right. Enough. Um. And uh, there's a bunch of people who uh, are back, say in in uh, the hometown who are saying uh, we're going to replace this general at any time we think they're not going in the right direction or doing all the things that we care about and they have a whole different set of priorities that are not purpose aligned i think if you're in a corporation where you have a board um, whose job it is to maximize earnings revenue profit and you have especially a public company where people's sense of investment is really only about am I getting a return financially, then you can talk about purpose all you want, but actually the factors, the mental models and structures that are going to drive your behavior are entirely dependent on that metric, on the money metric. So that's where self-management comes in. That's why self-management is such a revelation is because it allows people to use their own judgment um, 
using some simple, elegant processes for decision-making that allow for the entire organization to act as an organism, sensing and responding to its environment in real time. Uh, and there's lots of examples of how that works and, and why, and maybe we could steer away from like the army metaphor for that. But Well, I mean, you said something just a second ago about, okay, so, so the publicly traded company looks at one metric, which is earnings. Hmm. How's Teal going to work in a public company? I don't know. Um, one of the things that I've been working on with one of my clients here in Seattle is that we're creating a structure, a legal structure, that would allow for outside investment, that would isolate that outside investment from the organizational structure, the day-to-day -day operating of the company, okay. and where ownership would be distributed to the people who are in um, the community space of the company. So, so one of the ways that Teal is sort of starting to respond to that environment, the investment in corporate um, law environment, is differentiating that there are different spaces um, that the organization inhabits. And one of the things that you sort of quickly discover when you're working in a Teal organization or, or aspiring to become one is that uh, the how we think about an organization has to change. You have to start to think about an organization more as a community, really, than mm -hmm. as, um, yeah. You have to think mm -hmm. about it as like, well, th this wholeness piece that I talked about, this third breakthrough, um, people, when they are liberated to show up whole, amazing things can happen. Amazing things can um come out of that diversity it's getting back to that evolutionary principle i think that you know the the, the wilder and weirder that people are with each <laughs> other the more resilient the organization is in general because they can adapt to um rather than having just a few sort of standard responses to to difficulty or challenge or opportunity now there's like this really rich creative field to draw from so actually allowing people to or or reinforcing um people's unique expression and the wide range of human expression in an organization liberates massive energy, massive energy, mm -hmm. um, and makes it more resilient. So wholeness is a really important piece. Well, sometimes the work and the wholeness can be somewhat at odds, especially when you have to decide, okay, wow, I need to withhold some things not mandated i don't have to to um to narrow my humanity my creativity my my wildness etc uh sort of it's not mandated that i do that but there are times when i need to constrain my behavior such that i can work successfully with these uh, this group of people to do something else right mm -hmm. so there's a subtle difference there i think but it puts the locus of responsibility on the on the individual to make that decision versus hey here's your job description here's the kind of corporate culture don't bring your emotions your creativity or wildness or etc in here we just need you to do this one thing and do it really well there's a big difference between having that be mandated to you versus having you say okay i willfully will for now hold in abeyance my own needs for the sake of this larger project and if you're going to do that then there needs to be a space created for the organization to 
have the to to hold that humanness. Um, not sure if I'm doing a great job of explaining it. No, I get it. I mean, it, when you talk about, um, I mean, you just job description, right? I mean, that that sort of nails it down. Teal doesn't have job descriptions, not necessarily, right? There's lots of different things that that we employ. Yeah. But it's not like the starting point. Like this is your job description. These are your tasks. It's it's you're coming as a whole person, and you're going to come, and we're working on this thing together, and we're going to move and and morph to whatever we need at any certain point in time, and we're going to expect that you bring your best, and also that you adapt to the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, which seems like a, a a more uh, human experience of working on anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like when I was a kid and there would be a snow day. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, 10 a.m. in the morning, all the kids are out in the neighborhood playing in the snow, right? And it's, what are we going to do? Like mm-hmm. we're all here together, gathered together, and there's 15 of us. And somehow we would decide to work on these projects. Like we'd build forts, snow mm-hmm. forts, or we'd build snowmen. And I remember the experience of being in that kind of environment was just based off of our sense of possibility and and what would be fun to do. We got together and created these things and people would decide, oh, I'm going to work. OK, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on X. This is what's really exciting to me. And I'm going to contribute this. It's going to be great. And people say, yeah, you go do that. I'm going to go, I'm going to build these walls up Mm -hmm. here and I'm going to put little battlements on it. And then, oh, what if we put sticks on the top and then, and this leaf is a flag, right? You know, like there's incredible creativity and people just sort of, you know, kids just sort of organize around what gives them life. And then they create something. And as soon as that's done, then they either use it, they have the snowball fight or whatever. Most of the times we would create like these forts with big stockpiles of snowballs and we would never have the the battle that we imagined, right? Mm-hmm. It would be like time to go in for soup. <laughs> um, but you'd move on to the next project. You'd move on to the next thing. Now we're going to play football in the snow or whatever it is. So what part of what's necessary for in the sort of communal sense of organizations is that they have a sort of lightweight enough rule set that allows them to work meaningfully um, and somewhat efficiently and they have a community cultural container that that just because you're not contributing in this exact moment to say creating the snowman um, you're still a part of us you're still a member um, maybe you don't know what you need to do maybe you're one of those kids who you created your 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 piece and now you need to step back and observe the whole and see what's happening and then you're going to decide how to jump back in well for most people's self-concept, being that observer feels like being on the outside. I'm not producing. I'm not performing. I'm not creating. Mm-hmm. An organization say, well, what are you doing? We're pay- Why are we paying you to, to just sit there and observe, right? Um, so there's so we need to start creating structures that allow for sort of the natural rhythm of people working in a community. And that's where a lot of the work is going is separating into three distinct spaces in the larger teal enterprise these um these three separate containers that have their own rule set so even the self-organizing structure is becoming a little bit more differentiated and self-organized and code.org is one of these places where people are really thinking about how do we do this how do we actually take a self-organized structure and help it embed in the legal system current legal system in a way that will not reinforce the par- the paradigm of ownership equals power 
which could pollute our intention to be self-organized. And we also notice that we have all these community tensions within the self-organized system that we need to do something with that are not just about the work. So where, what's the space for that? How do we differentiate that? And code.org is, is, has one way. It code? Encode. Encode. Yeah, they're encoding self-organization. So is it E-N-C-O-D? Yeah, E-N-C-O-D-E dot org. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, for my client, what we're doing right now as we're working through this is we're working through some a little bit different situation because Encode has said, hey, if you're going to do this, then we're going to use Holacracy and we're going to use an LLC structure, for example, in the States. Um, but for for lots of reasons, my client that I'm working with right now, um, this fabulous, fabulous technology company called Biocellian, I could go on and on about what they're doing. But uh, in short, they're, they're harnessing the power of supercomputers to model complex adaptive systems, complex biological systems to displace animal testing and transform how biology is performed. If you can replicate the results like they can of an experiment of 10,000 test tubes of living tissue and they can they can take those 10,000 test tubes and do in 5 minutes what it takes that protocol 30 minutes or 30 sorry 30 uh, days to deliver you've just dramatically increased the number of iterations uh, that you can do in, in the testing field and you'll get a lot of transparency around what's actually occurring inside the biological system that you can't if you're just slicing open skin, uh, mm -hmm. for example. So what, what, one of the things we're working on with them is um, this understanding that there's a really rich community out there of people who could be uh, really engaged and really motivated to become a part of the vision of the future of biology that Biocellian is inspiring um, that don't necessarily have the postdoc level mathematical computer science or biological skill set to directly influence that project as a member of the organization. So what can we create this more like uh, a boundary that's less uh, that's more permeable around the organization for people who are interested in supporting it and being being a part of it to come in who are not necessarily going to become employees. So this this is the sort of the you see yeah, I that's you, know, really you can cool. see the potential of it mm -hmm. right is that we're more than just this product that we're creating or this one strategic aspect of fulfilling our purpose. We are a community that can hold a vast array of opinions and skill sets, etc maybe out of that community will come the next thing, the next strategy we'll use to fulfill our purpose. But we're not fixed on one particular strategy. The moment, it's software. The next moment, it could be something different or it could branch off or go any number of directions. Very cool. And then the legal structure, just to form the finish the picture, the legal structure is saying, how can we give everyone who is within this container some um, ability to influence its directionality uh, rather than have just one or two people who are the founders who own all the equity and have maybe they may be benevolent now as far as the organizational structure and community goes but um, how can we isolate that power dynamic from how we make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis and what have where are you at with that well what we've done is where we're at at the moment is um, creating a 
creating in the social purpose corporation structure mm -hmm. a board that looks and senses into different aspects of the organization. Um, so you have one person who's attending to the stakeholders, one person who's attending to the daily organizational rhythm, another who's looking at the uh, the assets, equity, et cetera, of the corporation and its legality. Um, and then maybe one or two others who are sensing into other things. We're not sure. Um, but it's a B Corp? Uh, it's actually for, in Washington law, it's a social purpose corporation, which oh, is something okay. brand new, relatively new, where the it, it's corporate law, but but unlike most corporations where that board is required to focus on uh, revenue, profit, um, you can focus on purpose legally. So it's a way, it, it's one of these beautiful developments that um, that we're seeing all around the world, actually, similar structures in the wake of the Great Recession, where people are saying, gosh, we need a more flexible legal structure. Mm -hmm. So SPC has not been legally, there's there's not a lot of, or or any, as far as I'm aware, litigation around the SPC. So it, it's a little bit of a, that's frontier. interesting. It's a little bit of a frontier about mm -hmm. like how will people, how will a judge interpret this law? Uh, we don't know. Uh, we haven't had any in, in, instances of that, right? Sufficient for us to set precedent. Um, so we're just creating with the corporate structure we're creating is uh, this SPC container, which holds the, the assets and daily work of the organization. And then we have an LLC wrapper, sort of. And anyone who's a member of the uh, SPC organization gets a vote, a sh uh, voting right in the LLC. Okay. So the LLC will be able to control the SPC. And LLC law is a lot more flexible and open. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that we're getting around the corporate, uh, the very specific corporate structures that you have to, to abide by. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you found... Um What's what's the receptivity that you've found within locally within organizations when you talk about you know teal? Is it something that there's an appetite for yet, or are people just waking up to it and sensing it? And hmm. well, one of the reasons that I'm spending so much time in Europe is because there does seem to be a lot more appetite and enthusiasm over there. Um, one of the things that I'm doing is convening a, a gathering that's an unconference sort of style. Um, rather than having speakers and, and known subjects, et cetera, what we're doing is we're convening people who are actively working in these teal aspiring organizations to uh, support each other, to bring their questions. We're calling it Next Stage World. It's like this idea of this, the global world gathering of these next stage pioneering organizations um, because it's and th th the reason I'm answering your question in this way is because my experience at that next stage world is that the person uh, the the development of the team the the leadership etc their personal development is so inexplicably um, tied to the the organization's growth mm -hmm. uh, and by growth i mean it's it's further unfolding and development and sort of evolutionary trajectory of itself as a teal organization and so here in the states you know if you look at some statistics around human consciousness development and 
granted there aren't many, it seems as though the United States is about a stage behind uh, Europe, which I know a lot of us here in the States will say, wow, that's, (laughs) some will say that makes sense and others will say I'm I'm shocked by that. Um, I think Europe in particular has been in this situation where their borders, they've run up against conflict mm-hmm. and they've they've been in the cauldron of, wow, we how we continue to do things doesn't work. Let's um, let's be inventive. Let's you know, you, you look at the last 40 years and some of the Scandinavian countries and mm-hmm. they have this shocking rate of iteration of of innovation, of, of um, innovation in their social structures that we here in the States, we just don't have that. We don't have that available to us. You know, there's not, we're not, as much as we are a mixing pot of, of different ideas and, and as much as we're a source of innovation, the problems that we're working on are uh, sort of privileged problems because of our isolation. Whereas in the, in Europe, I think this is just my, this is just my opinion. I don't know if this this is is Chris Clark's opinion. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Not Joel (laughs) or anyone else's probably know, but um, yeah. So, so so I think there's more readiness. There's a culture that says, uh, yeah, plurality, mm-hmm. you know, the plurality of viewpoints is more, we're more comfortable with that in the, you know, here in the States, um, plurality is, we, we can sort of escape it. I think you've got red States and blue States. Yeah. Uh, so we become more polarized. And I, I would say that in Europe there, it's less so. I recently watched that Michael Moore film, what country to invade next or uh-huh. the title something like that mm-hmm. where he goes into these european countries and he basically looks at their culture and and he claims things you know and he mm-hmm. said i'm going to claim this for for america and i'm mm-hmm. going to bring it back but they're they're all they're all great things like he goes to italy and and you know they have this great eight week you know mandatory vacation time for everybody you know, so then he's talking to some Italian people and he's like, you know what, in the United States, you know, there's a mandatory, our our mandated vacation time is zero mm. and they're, they're just horrified, mm-hmm. you know, and then he goes to all these different countries. He goes to Finland with the education system. I think it was Norway where he talked to, uh, he, he visited the, the jails, which are really these rehab centers for you know, rehabbing mm-hmm. human beings, mm-hmm. you know, and in contrast to, you know, the structures that we have in, in the U.S., I mean, drastically different mm-hmm. where, you know, people are just being treated like animals mm-hmm. here and being locked up and isolated. Like the treatment is isolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, instead of sequestering away. Yes, instead of rehab. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not surprising to me that you come up with that opinion and, and you keep returning there because these are, <laughs> these are the people that are talking about this. Right. So what is next for you? Uh, what's next for me? Well, I, you know, um, I, I started out feeling that the most important thing for me to do would be to, um, help the sort of the sort of tangible structural element of um how do you how do you organize according to you but that like let's 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 help with the structural aspect of that and um and i got really excited about holacracy for mm-hmm. that reason because holacracy is a really great i would call it like a 
almost like a bootstrap into Teal. If you are at a place as an organization where um, the idea of sort of using less structure than more is a little daunting and challenging, then Holacracy is a rule set that you can apply right away that will help you develop some of the habits of of the teal organizing so mm-hmm. one of the habits of teal organizing being um how do you make decisions according to purpose it seems very easy to say it's action practice is incredibly difficult and one of the reasons it's difficult is because we just haven't learned how to do that and, you know everything in us actually has has um or everything in our current societal makeup brings us through this conveyor belt of stripping away our autonomy largely you know we we're we're invited not to question you know there is a right answer uh that continues you know here's how you're evaluated measured and here's how you'll continue to succeed as if you 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 continue to clear these bars and play by these rules and that's anathema to teal organizing you you um a lot of people who who find themselves in the middle of suddenly, oh, I don't have a boss now, or I have no managers, or they're they're lost in the middle of the sea because they oriented their whole life based on these structures. Um, now that degree of freedom that they have is incredibly frightening. The level of responsibility they have is incredibly frightening. So um, holacracy is a way to help, in my, my opinion, um, is a way to sort of bootstrap some of these habits you know there's rules around um when it comes to decision making is my decision aligned with the larger purpose of the organization uh is it rather than uh so so you asked actually earlier this is important you asked about well when you read green when you read the description of the stage green Mm -hmm. you said oh isn't this enough well it's not because green values uh one of the one of the sort of ingrained values of green is that everyone's opinion is equal and as a result um if you try to organize via that sort of everyone's opinion is equal lens you'll get to gridlock because suddenly one person can stop the whole show because they don't agree with the approach uh consensus is a horrible way to manage an organization it doesn't scale Imagine if you had a thousand employees and every single one of them had to sign off on every major decision. It would be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. So that's not what teal is. Um, that's what green is. <laughs> teal is actually relying on either a process. I mean, the holacracy is just either a process that helps us um, use useful litmus tests to decide whether or not something is safe enough to try or not. Can we try it now? Can we iterate on it now? Can we, can we take the momentum from this idea and, and whether or not we think it's the best idea, it's the one that has the energy and the enthusiasm. Is it safe enough to try and continue us moving forward? It's a way of getting out of that gridlock. Either that, or there's this profound level of trust that comes out in things like the advice process where somebody who notices a potential, they say, Oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do X? will then go and, and, talk to all of the stakeholders around that decision gathering their advice and their input and then making a decision empowered by the system to make the best decision that they can it's interesting i've been in these situations where somebody says oh i'm sensing a potential and then they gather advice and the result is they do nothing 
And that turns out to be the best thing. It's like, oh, wow, you know what? I gathered all the advice. My decision is we're staying pat with where we are um, for all of these reasons, right? And people say, okay, great. And other times you have these experiences where somebody says, and this is an act of leadership, I think, they say, I'm sensing something that we need to do and change and how we need to go forward differently. Um, and they gather the advice and they say, okay, here's, here's where we're going next. This person isn't saying that from an authority role. They're not a vice president. They're just somebody who saw potential and was trusted by the system to come up with the best possible answer, knowing that all the stakeholders had been consulted. It's a profound act of trust to have somebody that you've given advice to saying, I think it's a bad idea for A, B, and C to come back, for them to come back to you and say, yeah, I hear you. I've gotten advice from a lot of people and we're going to go forward anyway. Um, profound sense of trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uncommon. Yeah, yeah, uncommon <laughs> and, and beautiful. So, so you can see like even in that example why a person's level of sort of comfort with ambiguity and their ability to detach from their ego and all these things is really important. And so that's where I'm, you, you asked me what's next mm -hmm. is I think that there is this way of being in the world and this skill set, this set of capacities, systems thinking, the idea of adaptive leadership, uh, being able to have yourself and a sense of purpose and evolution as your chief reference for making decisions. Um, coming to the senses of your intuition, your gut, your heart, in addition to your head, integrate all, integrating all of those. I, there is so much uh, in the realm of personal development that, that we can do, that I, I'm drawn to help facilitate. And I wanna do that in addition to uh, helping people say, okay, from that place of increasing wholeness and mastery, what is the next step for the organization and not necessarily say okay we're going to transform you into a teal organization and here's how we do it and here's the template and here's the blueprint but rather say okay let's create the fertile ground both in you and also in the larger community of the organization from which this tr this metamorphosis can occur so that that's the big learning for me it's not it's not um oh, there's a roadmap and it looks the same all the time. And yeah, there's patterns. You have to do that reckoning process, mm -hmm. that remembering process. And then uh, the, the sense of, okay, this is, my, this is our mission now, right now. This is our purpose now, right now. Um, those are all patterns that, that develop. But how you do that, I, I, I think, um, is through more of creating community practice rather than creating a change effort or a um you know change management a community of practice i like that yeah mm -hmm. so community of practice is important because it opens up a space where people are bringing right away their wholeness and that includes their doubts and their shadows and saying gosh i'm trying to get better at x the mm -hmm. sensing into purpose um, how can we support that in each other? Yeah, it's an environment of learning. Exactly. We're, we're all learning. Right. And are you going to do that in Europe? Is, is that where you're going to work on it? Well, that's where Next Stage World is headed. Uh, that's what we're, we're really doing is creating these conscious spaces where people who are doing 
teal organizing all around the world can come together in an incredibly rich, concentrated environment, which just also happens to be on a Greek island. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, the island of Rhodes is where we're holding these gatherings, um, which... How often are you holding these? Uh, right now it looks like every four months, so like three times a year. So you're going to a Greek island every four months. Right. And allowing the place itself and the culture, the Greek culture, things like hospitality and uh, a great, a great story for me, just an eye-opening story was we went to, um, after the first gathering that we did, we were walking around to different venues, hotels, etc., trying to find a place that would really match our intention. And we talked with a a man who was running a hotel and we talked with him. I thought, you know, we're going to go in there. We're going to tell him, okay, this is what we're looking for. Let's take a tour of the grounds. Let's, you know, bing, bang, boom, get out of there. And instead, uh, we sat down and we talked for about 45 minutes about his life growing up, his background, the time he served in the Greek military, his son, his hopes for his son and his wife. We had this really beautiful conversation. And then at a certain point, myself and the Greek hosts I was with, we all just had the sense that, okay, now it's time to talk about these, like, you know, these businessy things, right? Mm-hmm. We chatted for maybe 15 minutes tops. So out of the hour and a half, it was like an hour of story, 15 minutes of walking around and 15 minutes of talking about the logistics. There's something about the, the Greek islands and that culture, which, uh, cultivates the sort of awareness that we're looking to create in ourselves. And, uh, you know, I, I find all the time that, the most important thing for me, one of the reasons I go to Europe um, and will be spending as much time as I will be there in the future is because um, it's really important for me to create a space where I'm, I'm the noise, the current noise of the culture can be, I can be isolated from that enough to listen to my own inner voice. It's a little bit like saying, um, to use the fire analogy, it's like I need to gain enough distance away from the fire so that I can see what else there is, so that my eyes can become adjusted. And I myself find that unless I cultivate those habits, I will get drawn like a moth to flame. I'll just go both in my in myself and externally. I will find myself, even right now on this podcast as we're having this conversation, right? There's this draw to the flame of... Um, I want people to know who I am and what I do and, and, and to see me in a certain light. And, uh, you know, maybe in fact, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking maybe I haven't let enough of my shadow out into this conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe I've fallen asleep again, thinking that here I am in a podcast conversation needing to reinforce my identity as a teal pioneer and, um, Relax, nobody's listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for my mom. I yeah. love you, mom. And, and my mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, moms. Uh, but yeah, I just think to, the, to put a capstone on that um, question, I think uh, the other motivator for me is that I'm still in a place where I need to discover and integrate more and more my my bigness, my wildness, my creativity that's not... Uh, trying to continually align itself with what the um, what a destructive culture wants, and I'm still vulnerable mm-hmm. to that, really vulnerable to that. So, where are you going to live? Well, there's a little farm 
in the Austrian Alps. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's breathtaking. It's so beautiful. And there's a little community there of people who are dedicated to both teal organizing practices and also ways of being in the world and, and also expanding our understanding of, um, yeah, just of humanity. Like what, what does it mean to be human? So there's a lot of people coming through this little farm who are introducing things like constellation and the art of hosting and some of these other practices that help us integrate more of our, our body sense and sense of intuition and maybe even transpersonal senses into, into community and work and all these things. I'm really excited to, to join them. And it's in the middle of this incredible wine country. These the Alps what? with the vineyards on the side of the oh yeah it's like <laughs> it reminds me of the Shire actually come on from Lord of the Rings we just watched Return of the King on, oh, New, yeah. on New Year's yeah. so we've been watching them with our boys mm-hmm. over the, we read the books first mm-hmm. I read them to them and then um, said you can watch the movies one on New Year's Eve mm-hmm. so two years ago we watched the first one Fellowship of the Ring and then last year Two Towers and we just watched oh, wow return of the king the whole year just in between. the whole year in between oh wow well they're so epic and they're yeah, so they're huge, huge. Mm-hmm. and yeah and and there's so much violence and we just yeah. didn't want to go overboard yeah it's a very dark story it is in a lot of ways it's funny that we mention it because i um i'm rereading it uh and finding that oh wow when i read these books when i was eight so much of of what I felt to be true and essential in those books is where I f- still feel called. There's wow. some quality, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you sense in it, but especially in the Shire, mm-hmm. there's this sort of idyllic, um, human, even though they're hobbits, there's sort of this essential humanness that's celebrated, mm-hmm. I think, in mm-hmm. this like community. The, are you speaking to the, the comforts of the Shire? And yeah, well like <laughs> this, this whole, um, uh, one of the things that I'm rediscovering as I'm reading the books is that there's so much given to the, the place that the land itself is like a character. It has mm. so much to offer. It's, it's actually participating in the story and, and the land and the history and the culture Tolkien wove interwove these in such a way that everything seems to have a sense of agency. Even when they go into the dark forest, right? Like the, the trees move and they have this sense of like, we got, we used to belong to this vast forest a thousand years ago and we got cut down and they're still angry about that right there's some there's this like everything is alive yep um with agency yeah and then frodo in return of the king at the end he's well before they got up to the very top you know sam wise was trying to get frodo to remember the Mm. shire and he said i can't Mm. I, I have no memory of it. I can't. I can't possibly remember it. And then after the ring is destroyed, they're laying there, you know, in the middle, surrounded by Ava on this isolated island of rock. Mm. And, and Frodo says, "I can see it." Oh wow! I just got goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, but I think, God, that's that's just beautiful. I think so many of us are Frodo mm-hmm. right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am not sure what part I play yet in in the remembering, but I think that that's, a, that's part of what I'm hoping to achieve in mm-hmm. my life um, for my own sake, is that, you know, the last few years as I've been a first a refugee from corporate, um, from corporate environments and then 
I've had the space and time to do a lot of healing from that as a teal, somebody working in teal space. Um, it's, that's been the, the, just the shocking, wonderful, unexpected benefit of having so much space and time is remembering these, these things that were so important to me. Mm-hmm. I had sort of, you know, they, they'd just gotten layered over, mortared over almost. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, yeah. Yeah, we become so driven and, and then pile things on and you just forget. Yeah. Where, where you come from, where actually you're going to. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, see, if people want to reach out to me, probably the best way would be to just send me an email. Okay. I, um, I have, so I, I have a website, it's, uh, anthem.consulting and it's, uh, sort of a placeholder. I'm at this point where, um, I'm deeply skeptical of branding, like uh-huh. my own impulse, right? So this is one way I'm healing right now is that I, I know that I have some things to communicate that are important, um, I know that one of the ways I almost feel a little resentment to the culture, like, Oh, do I really have to become a personal brand? Do I really, in order to be heard, you know, do I have to manipulate myself into this, uh, sort of, uh, two dimensional image in order to be, Mm -hmm. to, to be respected. I noticed my buddy who's a chef just came out with a brand new website. It's gorgeous. And immediately in my own, um, assessment of him as a chef, I went up. You know, I was like, wow, I have a lot more respect for him because of his beautiful photography and his elegant website. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's so interesting. So I'm trying to resist at the moment an impulse to create that. Um, because again, it's sort of this, this like the seduction for me right now in my life of not wanting to play by the rules of the fire at the moment. And yet sometimes you have to, I don't know. But um, yeah, just send me an email, uh, which is Chris. Uh, actually, you know what? Better would be to just send it to my personal email address, anthemic at gmail.com. Anthemic is spelled like anthem, the word anthem, and then I-K-A-N-T-H-E-M-I-K.com. You can also find me on anthem.consulting uh, and also on Enlivening Edge, which is the online magazine that is sort of the uh, hub for news and information and best practice, et cetera, that's being distributed now. Um, enliveningedge.org is the, the email address there. And you can find me at chris at enliveningedge.org. Um, or nextstage.world is another place that you can find me. And my invitation, you know, as I'm sitting here, I'm realizing that maybe I have the opportunity to extend an invitation. Um, my invitation would be uh, that if anyone listening is interested in any kind of teal transformation or et cetera for their organization, I would love to help them have that initial conversation around what would this take for us? Are we in the place where we could handle this? Because the answer sometimes is no, that um, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of work that needs to go into the business of preparing yourself to do the organizational effort. So I'd love to have that conversation too. Um, or if you just want to rap about, uh, 
any any of these big highfalutin philosophical <laughs> ideas about <laughs> where modern life is headed. I just love to chat with anyone about that. Um, and also realizing how much has been left unsaid. But uh, thank you. Thanks. This has been really fun and totally weird for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Thank you for being open, yeah. for inviting me into your tiny home. Yeah, yeah. We've we did really well here. We've got um we've got the temperature at about ninety five degrees. I don't know if you noticed, but it's like it's it feels cozy here. to me. It's cooking in here. <laughs> My knees are almost touching, but we did it. We made it. All right. Cool. Peace. Okay, what'd you think of Chris? Pretty amazing guy, huh? Oh man. Um I don't know what to say, but um I really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Again, take a look at the the webpage for the show notes. Um, there's a bunch of information and links on topics that Chris and I discussed, as well as a way to contact Chris. So reach out to him. And if you want to support the show, head over to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash emerging future. And if you want to find me online, uh, my Twitter account is my first and last name, Joel DeYoung. So at Joel DeYoung, J-O-E-L. D-E-J-O-N-G. And with that, have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to you soon.